Hi, this is Terry Cooper, and here are my answers for the next part. Which is your favorite master? Well, it's a bit of a tricky one because I grew up in the 80s, and I will, I guess I'll have to concede that my favorite master is Anthony Ainley. Um, his interaction with the fourth and the fifth doctor. Uh, was absolutely fantastic. He had this sort of very uh, charming, smug, evil side to him. And when he pulled out his tissue compression eliminator and laughed, you know, I found him quite chilling, uh, even as a teenager. But that said, since doing the final game and um, getting to know Roger Delgado's master a bit better, and, you know, he's obviously um, become a bit of a favorite of mine because I feel that I know him a lot better being able to do the voice, etc. So, uh, you know, I know a lot of people will say the original is the best, and I can't argue with that, but uh, I grew up with Anthony Ainley, so I will say Anthony Ainley. It's very hard, in fact, and probably impossible to ask me, um, which is my favorite master, for exactly the same reasons that Tony said. It's like asking which is your favorite doctor. I don't have a favorite doctor. So what I will do to answer the question, though, is to take a little uh, moment with all the masters and say what I like about them briefly. Uh, starting with... Um, with um, um, where I feel it begins, uh, Edward Brayshaw. And with Edward Brayshaw, I love his um, his magnificent appearance, that bouffant, that, that coif of dark hair and that little thin little beard, but also his 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 very regal and very haughty, stiff and and um, over you know very imposing. Uh, appearance and how he walks and he's very how he moves and how he looks at people he stares daggers at everyone I like to think of him as a very um, quote unquote inexperienced or uh, inexperienced but rather um, overly confident perhaps considering his company in that story with the aliens but just a very 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 centered and 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 sweeping grand and yet very taut and, and tight version of the master of course, Roger Delgado. I've said so much about Roger Delgado. We're doing the final game because of him and John Pertree to celebrate their centennials. Um, but Delgado really has an uh, almost an archetypal image of a villain, even though in real life, apparently, he was a wonderfully sweet and kind man, much like Peter Cushing. You can compare him maybe to Peter Cushing. I don't know nearly as much about Peter Cushing, but he often he had a, quite a range playing heroes and villains and such. But he he was known in those in many from some of his villainous roles, including up to his, in his later career, Moff, um, Governor Mark, Moff Tarkin in Star Wars, uh, in A New Hope, Star Wars Episode Four. But Carrie Fisher, of course, said it was very hard to act, you know, in in character around him as someone that felt him, found him loathsome because she said he was a very sweet, kind, and gentleman that smelled of, as she said, linen and lavender. I imagine something similar could be, could be said about Roger Delgado in that he was described as a very gentle, sweet, and um, kind man, even a religious man. Um, and yet he has such an archetypal, villainous look. The sallow skin, the golden eyes, the, the dark hair, the, in, the, in the case of the Master, and, and other roles he played in the beard. Um, and he's a very powerful-looking man, too. He's not a very large man, but by no means every inch of him looks like he is, no part of him looks feeble, or inexperienced, or... or um, in his performance, or um, um, uh, debilitated anyway, or 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 uh, weak, he looks like he is a powerful man that he could fight you and break you, 
if he wanted. And yet he's not, because he's a gentlemanly villain. And yet one swipe and strike of his hand, and the person falls. Very well done. Wonderful performance with such depth. And I've already talked about his performance and things like, in any of his stories, certainly the Time Monster. Oh, he should... I don't know if BAFTAs were around them, and he should have won an award. He should win a posthumous award for playing the master, in my opinion. And then Peter Pratt and, and um, Jeffrey Beavers. Well, Peter Pratt's master is something that I don't think has been matched with any other version of master, which is just a, um, a horrific, grotesque, cadaverous, um, almost self-necrophilic, or this necro... this... this... this um, oh, necrotic, I don't know what the name would be, but this... this, this, this posthumous, almost a posthumous master who still exists a little bit like Omega except whereas Omega didn't know that his body had been destroyed and only his will kept him alive the master, his body has been destroyed and he knows it but his will keeps him maybe undead, I don't know uh, I, I think it's sad that we only have that one story with um, Pratt's master and so little screen time with the Doctor, but the screen time that we have is wonderful. But just that depraved, ooh, hateful, burning uh, performance is wonderful. Jeffrey Beaver's on screen is like his character in the Big Finish Adventures, really the closest thing we have to an on-screen audio master, because for the most part, Beaver's, as the master, is um, speaks to Melker, or at least you hear his voice, and only his voice. Through the four episodes, you see, hear his voice, and then maybe you see a hand, and then briefly, you see that in part two, maybe at the very brief end of part three, you see his face, but only for about a second, I mean, literally a second, maybe two, just enough to say, oh my gosh, who's that? And then you maybe think it's the Master, if you remembered, have been watching The Deadly Assassin, but of course he looks a little different from then, so, but close enough, you're wondering, oh, and then of course, he's announced as the Master in part four, but only at the very end of the episode, and the lights are dark, you don't see too much of him. He has le he and the Fourth Doctor have less screen time interaction than Peter Pratt's version does in The Deadly Assassin. He very much is the end of a transition. But wonderful voice, menace, um, malice, oh, deception, beautiful qualities. And I might as well then reference his performances in the audios and say he carries that and more. Um, and very different variations. So that version of the Master keeps showing up at different times. We've only we've seen him much more. We haven't seen him lately in the, with the Fourth Doctor, at least not in the last four years or so. But oh, I'm very grateful that Big Finish have made the Fourth the Master a recurring Fourth Doctor villain in what would have been the time the era that this would have happened in seasons you know 14, 15, such. I hope that we. It's too bad that with the death of Mary Tam some years ago, um, six, seven years ago, excuse me, that that we won't ever hear her in audio with the Master. Um, and therefore, I really hope that they 
uh, pair up the master, um, Beaver's master with uh, Lala Ward and Romana, you know, in the in set in like season seventeen or maybe early season eighteen. Um, they've paired up Romana with um, Lala Ward's Romana with uh, Derek Jacoby's master, of course, but in the Gallifrey Time War audios. But I really hope that we get to hear that pairing, Beaver's and um, Romana, the second Romana. Okay, so these are my answers to The Final Game Confidential, Part 2. So the first question is, which is your favorite master? Goodness, that is a question and a half. Um, (laughs) Well, much like Doctor Who, I really don't have a favorite incarnation. There's something I love about each one of them. Um, Everything from Jeffrey Beaver's amazing voice, creepy personality, to Michelle Gomez's somehow slightly contained yet utterly madcap, lovingly amazing performance. Um, but if I had to narrow down my choices, I probably would say it's either Roger or Anthony Ailey. Roger Delgado is, of course, the definitive master. He's the one who set up who the character would be for the next 40 years. Anyone who comes after him is, of course, judged against his own performance. Um... And I think right, rightly so. He's deliciously evil. There's no way you could see the master and not know that he's the arch villain of the piece. But at the same point, he's also a perfect gentleman to compliment Pertwee's doctor. It's an amazing combination that you could only really get in Britain. And it's beautiful. But on the other side, I also really love Anthony Ailey's performance. I think he's a great master. He somehow has managed to get unfairly maligned, I think, over the years, and hasn't been given the recognition that he really deserves, especially because he essentially reinvented the performance for a whole new generation that hadn't been able to see Rogers, Rogers' stuff a decade beforehand. And yet he managed to also imbue the role with a, with a real sense of fun, which was really something that I think the role needed. Anthony Ainley. Ainley is um, probably the first master that I remember where I fully knew who he was. Uh, he was the master, and this was his appearance and such. And I just love the master's, that version's just wonderful acting. People call him a pan, you know, a pantomime version, but I, I disagree. I think that he's simply uh, a much more uh, insane and and unhinged and 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 in certain ways, real, meaning he's no longer trying to be too charming and hiding things, as Delgado may have. Um, uh, he's truly more maybe un, undiluted evil master. Uh, unrestrained, certainly. Uh, the, essentially, the, the, the versions like Peter Pratt and Jeffrey Beavers accept given fuller, full mobility. So is, there's that sense of, I'm free. Wonderful. The fulfillment of what Jeffrey Beaver said the, at the end of Keeper Talking Part 3, after, at last I am free. And so, yes, yes he is, once he becomes Ainley. Maybe not quite Time Lord fully, but yes. Um, and, of course, that leads... There's, you have, you, in my opinion, if you're speaking about Ainley, you can't f- forget um, survival. A lot of weird things happen when you really compare... Especially the last two years of Sylvester Mc- of Doctor Who, but you know Sylvester McCoy's era, to what came before in the John Nathan Turner, at least the John Nathan Turner eras. I say eras because there's almost an individual feel for each Doctor. You know the more scientific, you know, hard science of the Peter Davison era, 
the violence and maybe grotesque themes of the Colin Baker era. Um, and then the kind of, kind of mysterious, darker, you know, uh, um, tropes and topics and such of the, of the Sylvester McCoy era. And you perhaps could split that, not exactly one-to-one, but to a certain extent, maybe by script editor, Christopher Bidmead for some much of Peter Davison's era, and then Eric Saward for maybe late Davison, because you started to have a little bit more of that violence in Davison's last year. But really, Colin Baker years with Eric Sayward, and then Andrew Cartmill for um, the last couple of years, certainly, of, um, of Sylvester McCoy. Um, well, and so, you go from Colin Baker, there's an interesting weird divide, it's not, it, there's this weird narrative break in a weird way, it's never really said that there is one on screen, but there is a narrative break, um, between the Colin Baker years and the Sylvester McCoy years in terms of, or at least a transition that, that's uh, subtle, it's, it's subtle in that it's never said that there is, and yet it's, it's, it's quite striking when you see it on screen in the sense of returning characters in the Sylvester McCoy years that you maybe saw in the Peter Davison or Colin Baker years, but they've all changed so much. Um, and this this could be a whole other topic, but just saying, you know, for example, you um, you could tie with the Valley or suddenly there's a narrative break with the Valley or oh, this dark future evil doctor or whatever, but then you get the Sylvester McCoy years and the Ronnie looks a bit different, certainly acts different. The, um, the Daleks look different. Davros looks so incredibly different and is so pushed to an extreme, then probably meant to be a head suspended amongst wires, that when Russell T. Davies brought him back, he had to reboot the character visually because they had pushed the character of, the, of Davros to such almost like an end point. And remember, the Seventh Doctor says, you've discarded the last vestiges of humanity. It's still no improvement. Well, the only way to bring back Davros in the Tenth Doctor's era and make it, I suppose, accessible to to fans was, well, let's reboot him to how he looked before Remembrance of the Daleks. He's got the, that costume, more or less, a black base, a chariot. He might have to, you know, to keep continuity. He's got a metallic hand, but he's got a hand. He's got a body. He's not just a head. Later, we find out he's half a body <laughs> in the Peter Davison years. Probably a nice little callback that, not necessarily, well, I think it's canon, no matter what, but the, uh, the uh, what was it? I think the Emperor of the Daleks uh, um, comic where Absalom that cuts uh, Davros in half. At least it gives that possibility. But in any case, Davros looks so much different in Remembrance of the Daleks. Um, the um, the Cybermen look a bit different, too. Not as much, but, you know, in Silver Nemesis. But, of course, um, uh, the Brigadier being much older. Uh, the Brigadier being considerable, or at least looking a lot different, too. It's a very different era in his life. And then, of course, we get to the Master. And Ainley looks different. He looks, Ainley looks older. Ainley acts older. He acts much, much, much more menacing. Much, much, much more subtle. Much, much, much quieter in his performance. Um, even his eyes look darker. Maybe it's probably because it was that was that was probably the one time, at least in the, in the '80s, where the the episode was, I think, totally location filming. As far as I know, there was no there were there were interior shots, but I don't believe that there were any studio shots, I believe, in the, or at least, if anything, very little, in the filming of um, Survival. I don't think there were any studio shots. It was all on location. Uh, and they used local sets, local... And 
and I could be wrong about that. But I have to make. But I believe it's all on location filming. And so the lighting is different. A lot of alien stuff in the eighties, you know, was in the studio, and they had the studio lighting and all that stuff. It's more natural light in survival, or at least made to look a little more natural. And therefore, his eyes almost look black at times, or at least like sea ocean blue or something. So that wonderful, as Craig Kinton once said to me. Ainley's performance, you know, was in survival. It was he was superb. Craig said it was wonderful. The late Craig Kent, an author of things like Millennial Rights, um, Quantum Archangel, and worked with me in Times Champion. Hello, my name is Richard Girl, and I would first off like to say thank you, a big thank you to Chris for the great opportunity to be in the final game. It's fantastic. So well done. Now the first question put to me was, who is my favourite master? That would be Roger Delgado. The order of things gets a little funny, you know, beyond Ainley because of, you know, audios and such, but I'll keep going. You, of course, you have Gordon Tipple's master, briefly, see, you know, briefly seen, not exactly, and produces just an image, but uh, I'll go in the order that I think in which they appear, um, because he first appears with the seventh doctor as uh, the, the McQueen master, the first fully audio version of the master. Um... I really like McQueen's kind of gleeful. Um, he's pushed a little more towards the very um, transitional. He's pushed a little more towards the new series style of Masters. I would say he is pretty much a new series Master. Um, probably the last pre-Time War, maybe kind of early Time War Master. Um, very gleeful, jovial in his killing of people, um, and in his in, in, he's very jokey. Very um, likes to make. Uh, such remarks, very sarcastic and very um, happy to be killing people, happy to live to kill people. <laughs> it's very funny. I, I will say that um, on audio, I'm grateful he's on audio because I think Alice McQueen's voice is perfectly suited to be the master. And I say this nothing against how he looks, but the way that he looks, and certainly the covers, I certainly think he perhaps does not look like the master. If I would change one thing about him, maybe he's a couple of things I would, if I were to, one thing I wish I could do is, is um, maybe ask, if I could maybe have Big Finish give him a, a more Time Lord or Master-like costume, because usually he just appears in a suit, and I think that makes him look too much like John Sims' Master in, in, um, in the last, in Series 3, in the last of the Time Lord trilogy, but I personally think that uh, McQueen should have more of a Time Lord costume, like oh, you see maybe on the covers of Dominion or something like that, or something, well, that's more like a Doctor costume. Give him something like that, but more of a Master style, with a high collar or something. Because otherwise, just a regular suit, a human, a male suit, eh, I, I would say just go for something, maybe create a, a costume, but also maybe give him facial hair. Give him a beard, and I only say that because I don't want to sound critical. It's just I personally think he looks more like Lex Luthor than the Master. Um, I'm not saying that the actor is wrong, looks wrong to play the Master. No, but I think because he is bald and he's clean shaven. Um, I'm not saying you can't have a bald Master or you can't have a clean shaven Master, but I almost feel that you, I'm not saying you can't, but I'm not sure if you can have a bald and clean shaven Master. Um, because I'm not sure if it quite looks. There is an element to something that makes him identifiably the master, and usually it's the beard, less so in, in recent years since Eric Roberts. But but they gave um, but they gave uh, Sim a beard in his most recent appearance. So I would say maybe at the least in future covers, give Alex McQueen a beard, or 
do him an interesting favor and give him hair <laughs> on the covers. I, I don't want to make. I'm not trying to make too much. I'm not trying to make fun. But I was saying, in my mind, at Redconning, I like to think the ma- that McQueen is is someone. He's an, it's another stolen Time Lord body after the events of the Audio Master. That's just a thing I like to think that he's stolen another Time Lord body, and maybe the shock of doing that has rendered that body temporarily like um, uh, hairless. <laughs> I don't know, but um, I like to think that in my mind's eye, maybe some of his later audio appearances, because they make a comment saying that he doesn't have hair. I like to make there's a comment saying I like to think in my mind that eventually he has at least a beard, but in, in my mind he has hair and a beard that he's eventually regrown. But uh, or maybe he shaved it for incognito purposes. Who knows? But I just love that kind of jovial, gleeful sense of being happy to be alive to kill. And then, of course, you have Gordon Tipple. I wish we knew more about him. We seen images. I like the way he looks. He's almost a synthesis of various versions. It looks a little like Delgado, a little like Ainley. He has the uh, those these crazy uh, these snake-like or whatever eyes. Maybe they're cheetah-like. Remember when I first watched the telefilm, Grace, as I call, I. Uh, you see those snake eyes, they, they bear a bit of a resemblance to cheetah eyes. Not exactly. But the same kind of color. Going, and I'm talking about survival. I was thinking, oh my gosh. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was an element of, well, the, maybe people watching it, making it, saying, well, the last time people saw the master, he had these kind of yellow eyes. Let's give him yellow eyes. But, um, yeah, I, I like to think that, uh, that there is possibly a connection. So I like that. It would be nice to know more about him. So probably, probably we'll never learn too much more about him unless Big Finish uses him. But um, even I'm not sure if they can. Who knows? So the master that got away in no sense. Just we have an image of him. He looks wonderful, but don't know much more about him. Uh, Eric Roberts. I love the Eric Roberts master. Oh my goodness! I think that he is possibly the pinnacle of just gleeful evil, just unrestrained. Love, self-loving, just evil, 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 and then just to the violence and throwing grace from the, from the from the balcony of the TARDIS cloister room to, you know, throwing Changli against the the TARDIS console, um, spewing his venom literally against the, uh, against civil guards, at the um, ITAR location, <coughs> excuse me, and then. Just uh, breaking Chang Lee's neck, just the violence. Some people said he's too American. Well, he's played by an American actor, of course, but but I don't know. I mean, it was just a sense of if the master is really just so close to death there, why not just get his hands dirty and destroy everything in his way to get what he wants, which is to survive? Oh, I love the Eric Roberts master. I'm so happy that Big Finish are using him. They've used him now twice in Diary River Song 5, I think, and upcoming Ravenous 4. I hope that they use him again. It's they've developed the master, you know, with kind of McQueen was kind of McGann's kind of post telephone master, and they've also done that audio mastermind with Beavers kind of giving a post telefilm history of the master. It's a little hard to understand or to reconcile how post telefilm Roberts fits. I would say they can do it, but if it were me, and this is if anyone from Big Finish ever hears, I hope that they we just like they're doing kind of the further adventures of Lucy Miller. I hope we get the further adventures of the Eighth Doctor and Charlie in the early years, Charlie Pollard, and ha- that, so that they have stories with the Roberts Master. I think that's the best place to use him, or maybe with the Samson and Gemma. Um, I should give some shout-outs to at this moment, if I'm going in chronological order, to masters that are off-screen that I think are cool, like um, the Preacher Master of the Glorious Dead and and such of the um, kind of Turner Millennium McGann Doctor Magazine comics. 
the first um, quote unquote master of uh, um, of color um, because the char- the character is a is an African. Uh, I'm not. I think he might be an American, but you know, but a, a black um, a black male um, as such. As he's drawn, he looks he looks amazing, very imposing and powerful. So I'd love to see that, almost like Rassilon, perhaps, in the way he is in the um, Divergent uh, episode when he's played by Don Warrington, again a, a black and an English actor of, of African descent, a black actor um, with a wonderful voice. So I almost I think that's the Don Warrington master, perhaps maybe not, but uh, but. Um, so characters like that, I'd love to hear that version of the master somewhere. If they they're doing comic books, I'd love to hear that version show up in the co- in the Big Finish audios. Now they're doing the Fourth Doctor comics. Other versions of the character, the man with the rosette, and the Eighth Doctor adventures, so very mysterious, meant to be look quite a little bit like Delgado, I suppose. Um, who else was there? The magistrate of the uh, novel in the Infinity Doctors, possibly alternate reality, possibly not. Maybe early time war. Who knows? Um, I've written some little short stories that explain all the placings of these masters, in my mind at least. Maybe I'll try to, sh- I will share those, maybe in a future installment of this Final Game Confidential, who knows. Um, and let's see, oh, the, uh, the War King from the Faction Paradox novels and comics. Yeah, he's meant to be the master, and he's also meant to be, and this is a certainty, the War Chief. Apparently Lawrence Miles thinks that, uh, the War Chief is the master. Uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful idea. Hence, War Chief becomes Master, becomes War King, but of course he's the Master again, so he's all the Master. Hello, my name's Denise Sutton, and I play Liz Shaw in the final game. My favourite Master has to be Anthony Ainley. I mean, they are all excellent, and they all bring different facets of evil madness and sheer charm to the character, but uh, he is um, of the era when I first started watching Doctor Who and becoming a big fan of it with the, with Tom Baker and then Peter Davison. He was so dapper and cool and uh, had such a capacity for evil. You couldn't help but be drawn in and not a little bit attracted to him, although some of the disguises were a little bit silly and he wasn't always so well served by the stories, but... Uh, he inhabited the role perfectly and um, it's a shame that we won't see him again because he was brilliant. Now we come to um, new series, definitely, so Jacoby. On screen, again, almost a master that got away because he's mostly on screen. He's Yana. Um, You are not alone. But then there's that few minutes, probably only about three minutes or something where we see him and one of my friends... Really wished, I love Sim as the master, but really wished that we had had kept um, Jacoby because it is the best. If you go from the telefilm to Utopia, the last of the Time Lord cycle, Jacoby's master, once he's found the master, is like the best logical step after something like the telefilm, Grace as I call it, the master being trapped in the Eye of Harmony or whatever, or or in some place outside of space and time after the Time Lord being trapped in this, you know, Time Lord, you know, receptacle, the Chameleon Arch machine. Um, at least the fob watch. How would he act after being in prison for who knows how long? An eternity, maybe. Well, as my friend described it, he's, he, Jacoby's version as the master, the few moments he was the master, he was hemorrhaging hate. He is a frightening version of the master. I haven't yet heard the um, Time War audios that feature him. They use him quite a bit now. Big Finish use him quite frequently as the master. I'm very grateful 
that Sir, Sir Derek Jacobi, who apparently, I, I can say this, I have not met the man, but I had a professor in, uh, who taught Shakespeare in school, and she knew him quite quite well. Um, she knew a lot. She was a Shakespearean, a world-known Shakespeare scholar, and and so she knew a lot of the Shakespearean actors. She said that he was a that Derek Jacob was a lovely man, a very wonderfully very nice man, and that seems to tally with how the uh, Big Finish um, producers have described him as being. I think the story they tell in one of the interviews is that he he arrives and remember he's knighted. He's and so there's a level in. in in any society, but in certain British society, of respect given to this, to someone who has been knighted for their services and such, and their achievements and accomplishments. So he is Sir Sir Derek Jacobi, Sir Derek. And when he arrives, I think it was Nick Briggs who said, um, actually, I think this was at a, the Gallifrey One convention some years ago, and but in one of these interviews where he describes what's it like meeting him for the first time. And when he came to the, not the set so much, well, the set, but the audio, the studio, and and they're wondering, how do we address him? He says, and the first thing he said apparently was, hi, I'm Derek. <laughs> Does not, not call me, but hi, I'm Derek. And because he's just being himself, he is Derek. So again, a lo- like Peter Cushing or Roger Lugato, a lovely man in real life, but he plays such a frightening character, because he can. Derek Jacobi is a, is a superior actor. I know him most from watching the... Um, the um, on PBS, the Cad File Chronicles, the, what's called, called Cad File, based on the Cad File Chronicles by um, Edith Pargeter, or the surname, the pen name Ellis Peters. Wonderful performance, very different from the Master. He plays heroes, he plays villains, very well. He, there was a film, The Golden Compass, where he played a villain. Um, also, Peter, um, Christopher Lee in that. That was very nice. But uh, Jacoby played like the main villain of this story, and he was v- oh, richly imposing. Doesn't have too much screen time, but you remember him in that film. He was see, he's something else. He he he's a superior actor, Derek Jacoby. Very much an equal to men like McKellen or Stewart, Ian McKellen, Patrick Stewart, and such. Oh, he's um, men of that age. You know, men that are around the age of eighty um, that have half century careers have played incredible characters. It makes sense that he should play the master. Because he was, he's something, he still is, I should say something else. And so I look forward to hearing, people, I'm hearing wonderful things about his master. I, my experience, I'm going off just those last few minutes in Utopia. People are saying that his version of the master is something to behold. And so I will take, he's one of the, he's like the only master, or the few master whose, whose version of the master I have yet to experience, really for the most part. But if it's anything from what he was briefly, that cameo appearance really, because it really was as the Master cameo appearance in Utopia, I can't wait. Um, then we come to John Sim. Uh, John Sim I very much enjoy too. Um, and it's been kind of a slow burn of experience. I've enjoyed how he is. I was Being honest, I wasn't quite sure back in, I think it was now, 2007, so 12 years ago really, a little over, but you know, 12 years, 12 and a quarter, 12 years, how how I felt about how he was in Series 3 in certain times, um, when he's, you know, when they're singing the music, I Can't Decide, you know, the, 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 or the Voodoo Child, when they had the pop music playing. I'm still not sure quite what I think about the pop music playing with the master, because they use like three or, two or three songs with him. Uh, two, I think. But, um, yeah, I'm still not quite sure about that. But, um, his more darker, scarier moments. I think when he, um, when he's alone sometimes, 
we'll talk with Toclofane in the room, you know, in, in the 10 Downing Street, just before the world ends and the year that never was begins and stuff, so, so, stuff like that. It's quite menacing, quite chilling, because he's quiet. There's an element of Delgado to him in that sense, where he he kind of moves between versions of the message, very much kind of all Alien Roberts or retroactively McQueen in the kind of performances when he's when he has an audience. When he's on his own, he shifts more to maybe Alias in survival or Delgado, maybe even very echo echoes of um Pratt, the quietness, but um um or even kind of this brooding sense of, of Brayshaw when he's alone, when he sits in the in the warlord's um chair and you know he, what he wants in work um the War Games Part nine. Episode 9. It doesn't matter, but still. I like to be accurate with the namings. Very, uh, there's a, me- there's a even then, a quiet menace. But then he, he, he likes his audience. Probably because he's, again, there's a jovial sense that he's returned to life. He's a resurrected master. Um, you almost have three, really, you really have three different versions of him. You have that, then you have him in the extended series for the specials, very much his um, kind of deadly assassin version. We even see the skull underneath, and he's pushed more towards, more towards maybe, a, much more towards just clear insanity, raging, um, and his powers are more free, and he, I like to think the Timeless can do anything, they have incredible powers, and they may just don't use them because if they did, they would perhaps destroy the cosmos around them. They're so powerful, they're too powerful. They shouldn't exist, maybe, in the real world. If they do, they would destroy everything. And the Master doesn't want to destroy everything in that way because he wants to control everything before he destroys it, perhaps. But, um, quite a, a raw, grotesque, you know, gruesome version, the Master. <coughs> Excuse me. In uh, The End of Time. Especially Part 1, when he's eating things. Oh, it's hard to watch. In fact, if I remember right, I think there was even a, a warning or something given, possibly, uh, viewer discretion something uh, for, to, fa- to viewers for the end of time part one, saying there are scenes of, of, of gore in this episode that younger viewers might find disturbing. And there is, especially when he's eating things or talking about food. It's, it's, it's a bit, um, I don't know, almost like cannibalistic, I suppose. Because he really is cannibalistic. He's a cannibal master. Reminds me a little bit of the cannibal themes of the two doctors or, or paradise towers or things like that. A shock eye and those women in the tower. What happens when you're reduced to just your 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 needs? And I'm not sure if time wants need to eat. So just for him, just consumption. No, they used to call tuberculosis consumption. It's a sickness. And it's 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 a it's a progressive sickness that the master has there. Then has a weird cliffhanger, I suppose, and we talked about cliffhangers, you know, what happened at the end of Time Part 2, and then we skip a whole Doctor's era. Matt Smith never has a story at the Master he's mentioned, but... And I like to think, just personally, that because he's mentioned in something... When the Eleventh Doctor mentions to Amy the Master in uh, Town Called Mercy, I like to think that he's had, maybe recently, an, an adventure with the Master, and Amy and Rory know who the Master is. I don't know. They never say so, but the fact that he says... Oh, all the I'm tired of these, the Daleks, the Master. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And Amy doesn't say who's the Master, so... And then Eleven mentions the Master to Clara. So, hmm. In Time of the Doctor. So, again, I like to think maybe they've had stories with the Master, because when the Master returns in the Doctor... Well, World Enough of Times, but when he's mentioned 
when the he and the doctor are talking, the doctor falls. The doctor mentions a set of circumstances that you could interpret to be the end of time part two, but it could also be something very different because remember he says, last time I saw you were headed to Gallifrey to deal with your 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 condition. Well, we don't really know that exactly the end of time part two. It's more like you would think that if that's what he's where he's referring, you would say, Last time I saw you I thought you were gonna be dead. I thought you were going back to the time war. It almost sense seems a little more purposeful, like I'm going to Gallifrey Doctor. Bye, or who knows, but um, catch me if you can, who knows, but, uh, but Sim Mark Three, season 10, well, he's several years older now, he's gone more gray, and they make, it's a, it's a reboot of the character, re-envisioning, well, again, like Alien Survival, it's a different costume, you get the sense, finally, he has a very much a time war costume, I very much, I really appreciated this, um, the beard, the grayer hair, he even, he even, you know, strokes his beard and says, old school, so he, in the Doctor Falls, he's saying, I'm, I'm back. So that implies that if the 11th Doctor were to have such a story, he might not have a beard, although I like to think he, let's just say, sure, why not, he does. Because um, most of the Masters that were clean-shaven, uh, including like Jacoby now in the audio covers, have kind of regained their beards. Hence why I think McQueen, and by that um, logic, Roberts should, in my opinion, have a beard too. Maybe just, Roberts was supposed to, but he felt it was too itchy, so he he opted out of it, I guess, uh, for the the Grace film. Um, but I say, yeah, for covers, just like everyone gives eye patches to certain characters f- to honor the Brigadier <laughs> for, for fun reasons, yeah, let's give all the Masters a beard. Maybe even Gomez, I don't know. But um, I'm kidding there. But um, but no, Sim is quite good. The, the menace is there in, in, in season 10. The menace is there. The humor is there. A little bit. Very dry and very subtle and dark. Um... But they've gone old school, so you definitely just like some people noted the the different versions of the the quote unquote Joker in Gotham. The the first version played by one character, the Jeremiah, all played by Cameron Monaghan, but Jeremiah's version um, is um, more like clearly meant to be based off Heath Ledger's Joker, and then the oh, uh, I can't, well maybe I'm getting the names wrong. Jerome, excuse me, you have Jerome's version is based more off of um. um the um, Heath Ledger Joker from The Dark Knight, and then Jeremiah, that version, the twin brothers, based more off of uh, a variation, maybe visually more so, maybe not acting, but of Jack Nicholson's Joker from the Tim Burton, first Tim Burton Batman film. But then, of course, there's a same Jeremiah, but then he's morphs, I haven't seen the last season of Gotham, and he morphs into a, uh, another version, which is more like, I don't know, but very grotesque, probably based on certain other versions of the comics or something. In any case, um, you almost give me two different individuals, but three at least different looks of the Joker. Um, Proto-Jokers, at least. Sam kind of has those three different styles. And um, his third style is, in my opinion, much pushed much more towards Delgado again. Um, and how he's acting. Not, not exactly how he's acting, but everything's kind of smoothed out. It's the first time that we see kind of a I would say not really, I guess you could categorize as a not not insane, or not so blatantly insane um, sim. Very um, very different, and it was very, um, very um, retrofit, and I really enjoyed it. Finally, we come to Gomez. Um, and I will finish. I will just say there is also the um, the reason why I haven't mentioned uh, the Dreyfus Master and another um, audio only Master. There are really three 
you could argue maybe four audio-only masters, you know, James Dreyfus, Alex McQueen, and then Jeffrey Beavers and John, uh, Derek Jacob, because both of those, although they appeared on screen, those two, their screen appearances were, um, especially Jeffrey Beavers' cameo appearances. They barely appeared on screen. They were mostly um, either playing another character, like Jeff- like Jacoby, or off-screen, like Beavers. And so they're mostly audio masters. Well, the reason why I really haven't talked about Dreyfus is because I haven't heard any of his stories. And so therefore, I don't know what his master's like. So I can't, I, I'm sure he's wonderful, but I, the supposed first master, although it's showing up in a fourth Doctor Audio, excuse me, a seventh Doctor Audio in the near future, The Psychic Circus, which is a prequel to The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, presuming what The Psychic Circus, psychic circus was like before the gods of Ragnarok in, um, invaded. Um, but it's interesting, that instead of Jeffrey Beavers or Alex McQueen or whatever, it's James Dreyfus. But I, I, I don't know anything about his master, so I can't comment on what he's like. Unfortunately, but well, well, he says in time I will just a little. It's like a, a larger version or a more extreme version of the Jacoby Master. I am unfamiliar really with his audio appearances, but I really like what I saw in his cameo appearance on screen. But Dreyfus, I don't know anything about his master, so I can't comment on his version. So Gomez, um, I, I will, I will, I will, of course, will be positive. Um. The thing about Gomez, for me, when it comes to her version of the mass, well, Missy, is that I will say the positives, of course, she's you know, wonderful performance, wonderful screen presence, very, there's a menace, and there, she's very much insane and very kooky and cute and all that and such, and very ambiguous and unethical, and so you don't know much about her, and she shifts into something, you know, different by the, by the end. I... And this, is, and this isn't a complaint or a drawback, it's just for me, Gomez is so different and you from the master. Especially in light. Um, you see, yes, yes, it's, and it's not so much, part of it is the gender, because she's a female. And, and the, you know, the time was the first time we saw, had seen a, a time where shift genders. It's much more commonplace now. It's happened to the Doctor, but even before it happened to Jody's Doctor, in the interim between 2014 and 18, 17, 18, um, we've had several other characters, um, a couple other characters, you know, well, of course, you have the general in, in, in the cliffhanger, in the closer for series nine, and then you have other characters like Constable Pavlo, I think it is, and the audio of the black hole, and a couple others in, um, in the audios and such, and in the comic, in these, in certain comics, where you have time wars that shift gender, so it's happening a little more consistently, probably trying to show that, trying to, you know, establish that this is an ethos that has been around for the entire of this series. I, I'm not going to pretend that it has been. We, let's not pretend that. It's it's a recent change um, in just the last few years. Nothing necessarily contradicted it, but let's not pretend that it, we can't pretend that, that this has been a long-lasting part of, of Doctor Who's um, mythology. But um, there is a shift to show, a push to show that it is part of its mythology now. Um, but it started with um, Gomez, so that's very notable. Especially when you think, it's a little interesting because when you think of her immediate successor on screen, John Sim, and at the time, in our you know it, the immediate successor was Mark John Sim Mark II, 
one and two, you know, of course, but but Mark two specifically, which is the end of time, and you know their their personalities are not terrible. Well, there are quite a bit of differences, but you know both are very kooky. Well, I don't know. I'd say she shares much more in common, a little more in common, maybe with Mark Johnson, Mark one from series three. Um, Sim is much more uncontrolled, you know, madness and and lust. I suppose you know you know you know gluttony and and consumption. Than Gomez is oh definitely. So there's our different contracts, but just a, a kind of a reckless, crazy master. You know the more um, overtly insane masters. Gomez fits there, but contrasted with Sim Mark Three in Series Ten, they are quite a bit different. Of course, by that point, maybe not as much because, as much as maybe it had had this been had their meeting happened maybe in Series. Maybe series nine or something, um, but but I suppose to a certain extent, and maybe I'm unfair thinking this. Part of it comes down to the name. She's never, except for identifying. I'm you know, I can't call myself the master anymore. Uh, so I'm Missy, short for mistress. Of course, she never calls herself the mistress. I don't know. Maybe for me, and maybe I'm unfair when I say this, but I personally have to think that maybe. Um, Missy should have been called the mistress um, after series eight, and uh, or at least after after Dark Water, because um, because it's a name that's never used aside aside again for an introduction. It's almost an unnecessary introduction because she says Missy short for mistress. I can't ke- really keep calling myself the master now, can I? Well, that's fine. But then she never calls herself. M- she never, you know, Missy could have been just a, a little alias, but instead everyone just keeps calling her Missy. I don't know. If there's any one thing I'm not quite sure about when it comes to Master is, is, um, is maybe that nickname, Missy. It's a little too... I, I, I get it they were trying to go for the cutesy, uh, cute element. I don't want to sound too sarcastic or dismissive, but like, oh, she's cute, kooky and cute, but she'll kill you, and that's cool. And I, that, 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 that can work very well. But in my opinion, maybe they should have just called her the Mistress. Because um, you've got to treat the character of the Master with respect. It's a long-lasting, now 50 years now. And if, I, if you include Brayshaw, yeah, 50 years. Even if you don't, it's about 50 years. Um, nearly 50, but I, I do. So 50 years of the Master now. For that reason, um, the character, definitely, if they can last and, and be showing up pretty consistently in those 50 years. It's not like, oh, we haven't seen this character in 40 years. No, we we just saw the character last year, and, and there haven't been too many periods of time where, where the, the character has not been around for many years. Even after Delgado, it was only three years or so before we saw him again with Peter Pratt. Excuse me. The point is, you have to treat the character with, I think, a level of, of menace and respect. And I'm not saying that Gomez, they don't, but maybe... maybe too... not necessarily too off, but often... Um, um, post-Series 8, certainly Series 9 and 10, um, Missy was, Gomez was paired up with the Doctor in not too much of an antagonistic situation. Um, and he, he actually, even including Series 8, because when, when her plan, when she reveals her plan, she's not saying, I'm going to destroy the world, or I'm going to destroy you, Doctor. It's like, I want you back, Doctor. I want my friend back. And so, part of my problem, I, I, I say problem, or at least my difficulty, 
really associating Missy with the master is that she the um the fundamental relationship in my opinion between the doctor and the master well between the doctor and now Missy is very is totally different which it has shifted to something and I'm not really sure why they never explain why there's a shift she says well I want my friend back so wanting this weird little alliance back I'm not saying that there hasn't been attempts at an alliance before like maybe a little bit of claws of access certainly a little bit in calling space but that's so long ago that any chance of it happening, I think, is, is has passed. And it was there maybe only a fleeting moment. I like think the Master would have double-crossed and killed the Doctor anyway. Maybe he's trying to get him out of the way of opposition. But seeing, seeing Missy acting like this, where she actively wants an alliance at the least, and perhaps more, a friendship again with the Doctor, as far back as to the beginning, her beginning, Series 8. I'm not saying it's impossible. What I'm saying is it comes out of nowhere. Now, some people have said and perhaps rightfully so, that it could be a nice character development from maybe what people saw as a redemption of Sim Mark II at the end of, um, at the end of time. And I, could, I can accept that as a possibility if that were explored. Maybe, oh, well, now he's tried to save the Doctor. I don't think he was redeemed. I think he was just trying to kill Rassilon. He wanted to kill Rassilon first at that moment. He had maybe a slightly larger grudge against Rassilon at that time, or maybe just more like, well, Rassilon's going to kill the Doctor. I want to kill the Doctor. I think that's reasonable, but anything's reasonable. The point is, Explanation: Why is Missy this way? Some people say maybe Sim, as a partially redeemed character, is is now conflicted about his morality, and he's thinking, "Well, I tried to save the Doctor. I want my, a friendship again." That I can believe that. Except we got Mar- uh, Sim Mark Three, which is in contrast and comparison to Missy, totally irredeemable, and he's not conflicted at all in his his quote unquote morality or immorality or amorality or his ethics in anything, it's just simply, I still oppose Doctor, and he says, I will never stand with the Doctor. So you don't have a progression of Sim into Gomez. Um, and that was maybe what I was hoping to find watching Sim as uh, Gomez. It's not, I can love the performance, but the ethos of the character, what's, what are her ethics, what is her, her motivations, why does she want to be friends with the Doctor again? And I honestly think that there is such a history with the Doctor that it can't simply be in my opinion, oh, well, she's insane. It's like, no, she might be insane, but she has driving motivations. Why is she acting this way? And the payoff is that there is no payoff. She's just acting that way, and it's not based off of any progression off of her previous incarnation, Sim, because Sim, at the end of his life, and we pretty much know that's the end of his life, does not feel that way about the Doctor. Just the opposite. He is opposed to the Doctor and will kill him when he gets the chance. But Gomez isn't acting that way. And I think part of the problem root there was, well, <laughs> um, even though they're try- trying to say old time modes are beyond gender, in the end, they, they, I think they seem to reduce it down to gender. Where that moment where Sim says, oh, do you have empathy now? And they says, it's the future all female, all girl. I, and I, I, I felt like it was... Um, like the series was being not necessarily hypocritical, but certainly um, indecisive about whether or not time was understand what genders are, are they beyond gender, or are they based upon gender? And so there are certain times where you can you know, have some contradictions and have as complexity, but, but in a moment where you're basing a situation on an identity and motivations on identity, gender identity maybe, and one moment saying, oh, this isn't about gender identity, and then 
saying that it is, that isn't complex, that's confusing. So I don't want to go upon, I don't want to make this negative, like, oh, I hate oh, Mass Master. No, I hate Mr. No, not at all. It's just like, I personally feel that maybe as a concept, I think, I personally feel that maybe there was a little too much of in creating, recreating the Master as a female. There was a little too much of a concept that was perhaps never um, exp- um, conceptualized beyond there's a difference here. And then when they finally give us the reasons for the difference, it's confusing. Um, and I would say, although as much as I like, I love Sim Mark III, maybe they should have, re- when they rebooted him, maybe Moffat should have revised him a little bit differently to show him a maybe wavering and uncertain, very conflicted version, and then that would lead to Missy. But instead, he was, there was no confusion or conflict in him at all. He is the master through and through, but Missy is not. So that's maybe my issue with, you know, when I think of what do I think about these masters, is that um, I have a lot of good things, I have good things to say about Missy, but she there's this overarching kind of disconnection from the rest of the character in some things are very close, the insanity, the 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 the, 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 the menace, but too often, in my opinion, they allied her too much with the Doctor throughout that time. In the end of Series 8, essentially, I want an alliance. Series 9, the beginning of Series 9, they are kind of allied, you know, with Dal- against Davros and all this stuff. And then Series 10, it's this redemption arc. But then the end seems to come down to, I'm, she's a female, therefore she has empathy. And I think, ah... Uh, I don't know if that cheapens the character or not to a certain extent because it almost makes it sound as if well if you're a female maybe you can't be a true villain some of the best villains we've had certainly in many films are these female villains so I don't know maybe that wasn't the intention but I I guess what, I, what I'm saying is that I'm not sure if Moffat ultimately um, uh, consummated the conceptualization of, of Missy too well if I were to do it I'm not saying, oh, we make her a man. No, what I'm saying is if I were to do it, I would have... I don't know. I might have not started her as wanting that an alliance or wanting her friend back. Maybe making her more monstrous, but then showing some some details, some little shifts, and then, over time, maybe shifting towards what we got in Series 10, but then not making any questions about gender or anything, just, or comments about that, just making her really just based on her own conflicted feelings and maybe just the years of monstrosity and then finally wondering is this worth it have I done terrible things just because she's now thinking about it and finally has a moment to reflect um or at the least at the least if I were to preserve everything with Gomez maybe the one thing that I would do is maybe have a couple other appearances maybe in series 9 um or maybe a special or something. I think what the, the time to be would have been Series 9. Have her show up in Series 9 one more time. Because, I don't know, Series 9 feels a little incomplete in the sense of the Missy arc. It's almost like they bring her along at the very beginning, and then maybe... it almost. Everyone, I just remember other people saying, oh, she'll show up again in the middle or end of Series 9, we'll have another adventure with her. Well, we didn't. So if there's any kind of missing piece when it comes to Missy, in my opinion, for progression, one place to do that could be, in my opinion, would be probably Series 9. It almost feels like... I don't know, maybe it almost feels like maybe the, the planning or the plotting of Series 9 changed suddenly or something. Maybe they were going to bring her back. I don't know. But what I am saying is if I w- what I would do is add maybe one more story with Missy, at least one, maybe two, in Series 9, 
where you would put her purely in an antagonistic position against the doctor. Because that's one thing that's really lacking when you really think about it. Is where, with her, where she is really a villain. In a villainous sense against the doctor. And then show how that works. And maybe something in that dynamic changes her perspective for some reason. Since we didn't get that, she feels a little too, for me, in terms of concept, not performance, but concept and motivation is a little too divorced from the master to quite fit well, especially when you bring Sim Mark III uh, into the into play. But Sim, it's master, into series 10, then it feels even more odd because you don't, you really do not have a progression from one to the other. When I think they were trying to show the, you know, at least the, the transition is, they're too different. It's almost like, now maybe that's the interesting thing. It is a paradox. That I can understand. But characters don't really progress through paradox. They, re, they they recurse. And so, maybe it fits there because it's probably the end for both characters, but even so, I don't know. I've talked about a lot <laughs> about Gomez. Um, but again, and maybe it would just come down to just call her mistress, and then she, maybe there's a little more serious element to her. But, um, or maybe have her say, are you the mistress today or are you Missy? That would have been interesting to show where she stands. You know, give you a better sense of the plotting of the character is if she is if she has those two names. Because they, they always just called her Missy. I think it might have been a little more effective, a little more complex, is if at times she was the mistress. I'm the mistress today. Not even say that, but, you know, say, you know, you say, all oh, right, Missy, mistress. Like, take me seriously. That, I think, would have been interesting. At times she's the mistress, but at times she's Missy. Who knows? The doctor's friend. Or maybe frenemy. Uh, sometimes she's the enemy, sometimes she's the frenemy. Never a friend, but I think that had they played up that element, I think that would have been very interesting. One of my earliest memories and first impressions of the Master. Well, it's, one, it's an odd one, because I came into fandom in season 17 of the classic series. So that was with um, Destiny of the Daleks. And so I didn't actually get to see a master on screen until The Keeper of Traken. And The Keeper of Traken is an odd story if you're focusing on the master, because it he's sort of three things throughout the course of that story. I mean, you, you start off thinking, oh, this Melka thing is weird. Has he calcified from, you know, the last time that you saw him, or at least the last time that you knew of him? Uh, into this weird evil thing. And then it turns out that that's only half the story, and you get the voice of Jeffrey Beavers first, and then you get a kind of evolution of the Peter Pratt version. So you think, well, okay, so that's the master. And it is, and when he's on screen, Jeffrey Beavers gives it his all. He's got that real sort of sibilant, sadistic, um, almost desperate for payback kind of quality to him, uh, which I think is quite scary even to this day. And then, of course, he turns into Anthony Ainley at the end. He turns into this guy who's been a friend of the Doctor throughout the story. And, you know, he loses several decades and gets a bit of a silky chuckle and then disappears. So it's, as a master story, if it's your first introduction to the character, which it was mine... It's a bit odd. And then, of course, I was lucky in that I had two quick um, Anthony Ainley stories 
you know, back to back when uh, Logopolis and Castrovalva. So he could really impress himself on my understanding as well. So this is what the master is. He's this cruel, um, almost careless, really, force of opposition to everything that the doctor stands for. And that that's how I really sort of keyed into the master rather than keying into the three things that he was in um, in Traken. Who is my favourite master? Yeah, that's going to take us a while. I don't really have a favourite master, because it's like saying, who's your favourite doctor? They're all variations or elements of the same personality, but they each bring different things out in them, and they're each enjoyable on that level. Um, I can tell you absolutely that I can still watch the uh, first episode of Terror of the Autons, and that first glorious moment where the Delgado Master arrives and steps out of his TARDIS and takes control is absolutely perfect. I mean, it's spot on. You can watch it time and time and time again. It's still going to be perfect, because they nailed it that time. And, I mean, there's a degree to which you know, his game plan was, to some extent, uh, set up before that. But, to a large extent, that original scene, I think, goes a lot, a long way to explaining why the Master has always gone on to be such a powerful villain in Who. Because Delgado absolutely nails it to the screen and you can't look away from him which is ironic and beautiful and powerful as it's supposed to be so there's that um delgado i think is the doc the the master that makes it look most effortless most like there's no acting involved uh because he doesn't usually go you know sort of stereotype baddie over the top Certainly not that often he doesn't. He's absolutely evil, but he's absolutely evil and suave and charming and all those things can coexist in him at the same time, and do. Um, and you see that all throughout the, the Delgado years. Stunning, stunning performance. It's kind of antithetical to say this, but I think my second favourite would probably be Michelle Gomez as Missy, for the opposite reason, because... She's absolutely stark raving bonkers as Missy. But you're never entirely sure how much is real, how much is acting on one level, how much is acting on many levels. And that, that brings a really quite frightening uncertainty into any conversation with her. I mean, she's a master, don't forget, who more than any other, brought casual destruction into her time. You know, she destroyed uh, Osgood in a kind of horrifying, playful way. Um, the soldier who was shot stone dead while she and Clara were talking. This is in the middle of conversations. This isn't, wahaha, you know, I'm going to kill everybody now. This is, no, one second to the next second. She's killed somebody with a life and a family and a this, that and the other. It's that sort of knife edge that she brings to the, the role, and you're never certain 
how much is real until all that drops away and it's just her and the doctor. It's like she's always trying to get time alone with the doctor so that she can just be who she is rather than being this grand figure, this sort of grand avatar of evil that she thinks he expects her to be, I think. So certainly Delgado, certainly Gomez. I mean, I don't think there's been a bad master, to be fair. But those two are uh, are out ahead for me. My earliest memory of the master. Now, I used to watch um, Tom Baker when I was growing up. I never, I don't recall seeing any John Pertwee stories until watching them on VHS and DVD and Blu-ray. So obviously my memories are confused about that matter. But the earliest memory must be the deadly assassin. And then after that, the keeper of Traken. What is my earliest memory of the master? Well, it was a deadly assassin. Um, the first time I saw the master in the deadly assassin, he was this rotten, uh, shrouded character, like um, kind of a zombie in a hood. And you know, I had no idea that he was a Time Lord. I, no, I just thought he was a monster called the Master. Like I say, I grew up with the last few episodes of John Pertwee, but I don't remember Roger Delgado at that time. So the first time I ever saw the Master was uh, the Deadly Assassin. And, and today, to this date, I think that's the most hideous-looking, uh, horrific-looking creature ever been in Doctor Who. I can't think of anything that's more disturbing than that. So the second question is... What is your earliest memory of the Master? That's, again, a very hard question to answer, at least accurately or truthfully, because I've, I've been shown Doctor Who since I was young enough to not remember it. It's pretty much been an ever-present presence in my life since I was, was born, because my dad's a big Doctor Who fan. <laughs> he likes to tell me stories about me being three or five months old and him trying to show me Spearhead from space, kind of jokingly, and I just never paid attention to it, and that's something that I still regret to this day. <laughs> but um, with that in mind, I'm sure that I saw the Master at some point. I just don't remember when I first saw him. If I had to make a definitive guess, it probably would have been in Tear of the Autons, because that was a story that my dad loved to play. It's a great story. It's amazing. Um, and it introduces the Master in a really cool way. When you expect to see a Time Lord pop up, you don't really expect him to appear in a TARDIS that looks like a horse carriage or to step out and look so perfectly incongruous with a carnival background or, or what have you. Um, but yeah, I, I'm pretty sure Tear of the Autons is probably my earliest memory of the Master. It's either that or maybe Frontier in Space. One of those two, I'm pretty sure. Was my earliest memory of the Master. And, um, that's an interesting question because, um, the reason why I say that is because my early, it goes back to my earliest vague memories of Doctor Who, which are the War Games. Now, you know what I will say, probably if anyone's heard me now in these podcasts, is that I feel that the War Chief is the Master. Uh, I'm one of those fans, and I think it's um, fairly 
fairly widespread uh, fan belief, uh, fan fan belief that the war chief is the master, and that's and it's pretty. I've, it, to me, it's pretty self-evident why. And to others, I think, would understand that at least they, they look very similar. They act very similar. In fact, I would say they look similar and act identically in terms of their plans. Their personalities might be different. But, of course, you compare, let's say, the master, the Delgado master to John Sim, especially in John Sim's appearance in, in, first appearance in Series 3, um, and certainly how they look. I don't think too many people, if you didn't tell them, if you maybe edited it and said, okay, uh, you edit out the dialogue or something that you don't hear the word the master, but you know that there is a master... Um, and you watch the two. Well, maybe you know. Say you don't know that you're usually you don't know who the master is, and you watch the episodes, and they're edited, or you maybe you catch somehow by coincidence just footage um, that just shows the two characters interact with the doctor, but you don't know who they are. I personally don't think that too many people would think that uh, just based on that kind of innocent st- condition that though that Delgado and Sim are the same character. Uh, because they act very differently. They look very differently. Sim, especially in his first time around. Not in his last time with Capaldi. He looks very much like very much like Delgado in many ways. But um, that's a purposeful thing by the producer and, and the creative team to make him look like the master. But, you know, in his first time around, he doesn't really look like the master. What you'd expect on screen. He doesn't really act like him. He, looks, he acts nothing like Delgado. At least very little like Delgado, if anything. So... So, if people say, well, the war chief acts differently from the master, well, he acts a whole lot closer to certainly the earlier masters, let's say Delgado or maybe even Ainley, than, um, than the, er- the official masters like Delgado or Ainley uh, act compared to Sim or, or Gomez. So, if it's based off of personality, I don't think that that really flies anymore, if it ever did. So, yes, their personalities are very similar. Their modus operandi are very similar. Their appearance, at least with the earlier masters. Um, is similar between them and like the War Chief. So I think the Masters of War Chief. So why do I say that? Because my earliest memories of Doctor Who are watching very vaguely the War the War Games. But it's it's complicated in that sense because back then I didn't. I just barely starting out watching Doctor Who. I don't really know what Doctor Who was. I just noticed I liked it. I liked the characters. I liked it was you know I was probably intrigued by the fact that it was black and white episodes. I think why did this why does this look like black and white? A very young, very childish, child mind thinking this, these things. Asking questions, not just it's like why is the sky blue? Why is the screen gray? Essentially, why are these characters gray? So I would have seen Brayshaw. Edward Brayshaw, of course, plays the war chief, and I, well, I'm going to call him the master. In my mind, but at the time, casting my mind back then, he was simply a character on a screen, and the way he looked and was acting, I guess, I guess he's the bad guy. And then, of course, come to. Will be the, my earliest memories of the master. Um, well, let's just say where you, no one's going to argue that he's the master, or not is of course Delgado. But of course, I'm watching Terror of the Autons, and um, and I see this guy again, and, and I think, well, I guess this guy is the bad guy. Um, I probably wasn't. I don't. I don't think I was thinking to myself. Oh, is this guy the war chief? Because again, it's just too young, and um, and I again these. <laughs> Stop making the connections, probably at all, because it's like, well, I probably didn't even know that this person that I would have seen that was was Patrick Troughton was this other person that would became this other person that's uh, John Pertwee, because of course you didn't even see their regeneration, and I'm not even sure if I saw that episode. I just remember vague images of the war make, the war games. So all I have are vague images of people, and then trying to pick out who are they on the screen, 
Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Who's, who are the good guy's friends? Who are the bad guy's friends? But what I remember, certainly about the early moments of Delgado, is I see him in Terror of the Autons, and he escapes, and then I see the mind of evil, and the story begins, part one, then in part two, oh, look, there's that same bad guy. He's a, he, he survived, of course. And I knew that he had survived, I think, but, oh, he's back, okay. And then you watch him, and then he seems to escape. And um, and then I watch Claudius Vaxis, I think, oh, there's that same bad guy again. Oh, I think they, they're calling him... Are they calling him the master? Who's this guy? It's not until I think Claus, um, excuse me, calling in space that I had fused the face to the name and realized, okay, there's the master. Because the master is mentioned right at the beginning, although you don't see him until halfway through the series. And that was the first time, I think a seminal moment for me in watching Doctor Who is what the master is calling in space. Although I will t- take a step back and say I really enjoyed one of my early enjoyment scenes in for the master is in Claws of Axis where he's trying to repair the doctor's TARDIS. And there's a scene where he, there's a moment where he's got his hands above the TARDIS console, and I think if you actually look closely, he's pulling levers. But since it's a very thin lever, there from certain angles, almost looks like he's just got his hand hovering over the console. And I still like to think in my mind that he's doing this. He's maybe telepathically communing or communicating with the TARDIS. Um, certainly the TARDIS is communicating with him when it shows an image of the reactor trigger uh, on the screen. So it's very cool, manipulating the master. But calling space is a seminal moment for me because that was the first time I think that I merged in my mind the, the name, the label to the face, the 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 totem, the image of okay, this is this bad guy is the master. And then of course you go to, to the daemons and such. So those are my earliest memories. But I also also should say that that extends even to the as I've said before earlier into the Tom Baker years because. I may have known who the master was, but then the master, because of the death of Roger Delgado, eventually disappears. And story comes and story goes from wondering, where's the master? Until he arrives, returns to the deadly assassin, and looks completely different. So again, another seminal moment. It's like, oh my goodness. I was expecting Roger Delgado, or at least the man that was in the, the Pertwee episodes, and we have this. Who? What happened here? How did he come to be this way? Well, we, in the context of the television series only, we've never found out, even now. Uh, something I might want to explore soon in my stories, hopefully one day. But uh, and then, of course, another sem- seminal moment would be um, early because remember these all these these might be spaced out across a decade or more in Doctor Who. But as I said, this is only over the course of a year, year and a half, or something for me. On Saturday mornings, early, and you're sleepy and such, and trying to figure things out, but you want to see Doctor Who, <laughs> and you see the, something like Keeper Trocken. And then Logopolis, which I listened to Tony, those would be his earliest memories of it. Not necessarily mine, but they are, they're not my absolute earliest, but in a way they are, because they're all mixed together in the sense of the continuum of the master, and suddenly, oh, well, he's, you blink and you miss it, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, he's, he's, he looks like he didn't deadly assassin a little bit, a little bit different, maybe, but, oh, now, what, what in the world? I, like Tony, I, 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 I was, because Keeper Trocken is a bit of a complex story. I didn't understand all of it the first time I watched it. And then suddenly you see the Master change from one thing, Melkor, let's just say, to his appearance, an evolved, as Tony said, form of Peter Pratt's Master, or at least the version you saw in The Deadly Assassin, into Anthony Ainley. But, is he, but Ainley was playing another character who was old, and suddenly he's younger or young, and you don't really understand. But then you pretty quickly realize, again, because I knew I had the name, the label, Master, and then the face of the Master. I already knew those together. And because Ainley is purposely made to look quite a bit like Delgado, a restoration of, of those things, 
I was able to figure out, okay, this is the master. Oh. And then I've already explained, I wasn't quite sure what was the order of things. Is it the same man? Is he, looks, he, he should be older, yet he looks younger, and of course we know why. Different actors. But it was a very interesting kind of evolution of my own perception of the Master, going, starting from, for me, personally, because I connect the characters, Edward Brayshaw in the War Games, to someone that looks like him a little bit, but then Roger Delgado. And then eventually, years later, connecting them, in my mind, as the same character. I'm kind of wondering even then, oh, is that the same guy? Because mm-hmm. I was wondering, because they look so much alike. Um, to the shock of his disappearance, the, 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 the question of his disappearance, and then the shock of seeing him, this cadaver, and then suddenly seeing that, the questioning of seeing sometime later this cadaver become someone else, who already was playing someone else. So it was interesting. And going from there. Um, so those are some of my earliest memories of that weird type of evolution from, believe it or not, the war games to, um, in a short time, relatively short time, the war games to Logopolis. Second, third, fourth Doctor's eras. Um, I got to experience more than ten years of Doctor Who in just a short time. It's very nice. Um, my earliest memory of the Master, I should be able to say it's the Deadly Assassin, because I did watch episode one of that story, but I was rather disturbed by that story, I think. I couldn't get my head around the idea, well, the Doctor is about to murder somebody. And I think I stayed away for the next few episodes, although, of course, I should have known. He's Doctor Who. He wasn't. He hadn't turned evil. He wasn't going to do anything terrible. But uh, obviously I had a bit of a crisis of faith back there, so the first time I did see the Master was in The Keeper of Traken when it was Geoffrey Beavers with his wonderful voice being first Melka and then the Master within. I actually got to meet him recently at a convention and he was very charming, very sprightly elderly gentleman but he's still got that voice. The little nuances now and again that send a little tingle up your spine. So which is my favorite Doctor Who cliffhanger? This is going to be a question in two parts, I think. If we're talking objectively, as in what I think is the best that fits with the story, or, or is just dramatically the best, best written, so forth, it's got to go to Caves of Avengers on part three. That's hands down, in my opinion. The objectively best written, best performed, and just all around perfect cliffhanger. Doctor Who is taking the ship back down to Androzani Minor to rescue his friend. He's going to crash the thing, not knowing if he's even going to survive, but he's so dedicated to saving Perry's life that he's he's pushing himself as far as he can. Icing on the cake is the fact that you can see that he's fighting off his own regeneration because he knows that if he regenerates now, he's not going to be be present enough in, in terms of his mind and whatnot in order to rescue rescue Perry. It's beautifully dramatic. It's it's just it's a great cliffhanger. But if I'm talking on a more personal level, as in not what I think is objectively the best, but what I think is my personal favorite, I'm probably going to have to go with I think it's Terror of the Vervoids Part Three. No, no, probably part two. The cliffhanger where the Sixth Doctor and Mel uncover the half-human, half-vervoid hybrid. <laughs> that thing scared me. That that one cliffhanger utterly terrified me. I always used to 
to to to watch terror once in a blue moon knowing that was coming and i'd spend the, the first two episodes of the story dreading seeing that and then it would come up and i'd be i'd be horrified and terrified and want to jump behind the sofa and hide or whatnot but in that kind of amazing well amazing is not really the right word in that kind of terror that you get as a kid where you're frightened to death but you love it and it's the kind of terror that if you're lucky enough you'll manage to still have as an adult so for that i love that that cliffhanger from from terror of the rewards because of just how shocking and and how enthralling and intriguing it was what is my favorite cliffhanger um from doctor who and there's so many it's um it's not native to Doctor Who and it wasn't pioneered by Doctor Who and it doesn't end with Doctor Who but you know but Doctor Who has because of its long lasting um history and its science sci-fi nature wonderful uh, story um history and catalog of cliffhangers and yet at times funny enough because there's so many it, unless you really set your mind to studying them and memorizing them it's hard to remember all of them sometimes you remember the non cliffhangers that are meant to be cliffhangers perhaps like death to the daleks part 3 where the doctor um and um ball i've be all over watch, walking through the um the corridors of the uh, of the great city of exelon and the doctor they reach a certain point in the in the in the uh, corridor and the doctor's um holds back a ball and he says stop don't move and that's the end of course it's simply oh what does it mean and it's simply um there's a <laughs> it was where the i guess it was the best best part to uh, cut the episode for time and such i think they might have been running long or running short on that episode and they need to find a place to put it uh put a place to edit because what it is simply oh it's a thing on the uh, a logic puzzle on the floor but you don't really know that too much you might be able to see it on in the camera shot but it's simply what's happening um and so there's that or there's the um also the john pertwee era um the last um i think it's yeah episode two and episode three of the plan of the spiders you had an episode where they finally gave john pertwee a, a um well they had given him before such things but they really went all out and gave pertwee an ep- um, a massive chase sequence, which really, when you watch part two of Plan the Spiders, takes up, oh, more than a quarter, in fact, even possibly a third or a half of that whole episode. The, the, it is, the, the episode is essentially a massive chase sequence with cars and hoverboats and all this stuff and, and planes, and it's just a massive chase sequence between the Doctor and this, and uh, Lupton, um, played by John Derth. I think that's how you pronounce his name. It could be Deerth, I'm not sure. Uh, essentially, the surrogate for Roger Delgado's master of that story. I like to think, being very honest, that might be the closest thing to an idea of what we might have seen in, in the final game in its original versions. Maybe a massive chase between the Doctor and the Master uh, in the story. Uh, knowing now the whole history of the final game, I kind I have think to myself that... that um, to a certain extent, that's what we are seeing when we watch Planet of the Spiders, is a l- echoes, sh- shadow, silhouettes of what the final game would have been. Planet of the Spiders, no misunderstanding, is a wonderful story, but uh, it is, um, it is once you know your history of Doctor Who, it is a replacement. And it feels like it, just in the sense, although it is a completely independent and complete story, knowing that the Master should have been there, nothing really compares, oh, or sh- should say, things can compare, but nothing really replaces the Master. But John Drith does a very good job as Lupton. He also voiced um, uh, 
boss, the previous year's closer in the Green Death. So it, I think it was, um, again, you could argue a small surrogate, even though it was before Roger Delgado's death, for the master in that story. So it, I think John Drith was the, was the best person to replace Roger Delgado uh, as the final, real you know, one of the last, you know, as a humanoid, let's say, villains of the Third Doctor's era. But that cliffhanger I mentioned because um, the... The episode ends, you know, the part two, and the Doctor's just about to jump, I believe, and capture Lupton, and he's, but suddenly he's disappeared. The funny thing is, is that that cliffhanger is replayed almost, not necessarily in his full entirety, but maybe half of that sequence or something is then replayed in the final game, um, excuse me, in Planet of the Spiders Part 3, because I think the material for Planet of the Spiders Part 3 was running under considerably, and so they they made the... I guess Barry Letts or whoever made the final editing decision just simply said, well, let's just pad... It was one of the greatest, probably single greatest pa- episode paddings, meaning adding material that probably doesn't need to be there to increase the length, the time length of an episode to um, satisfy and, and ensure that you'll have your episode count in the end. Um, another notable thing, is, of course, I mentioned this before, is Kinda. I think the last episode of Kinda has a few extra... A whole little plot strand of actors being trapped inside of a a mining machine or a mind control, you know, mentally controlled um, uh, technical machine um, that, and he starts to lose control of it, and that that was inserted because that episode of Kinda was running under by a few minutes. Similar thing in Planet of the Spiders Part Three. So the whole cliffhanger is replayed again, but in extended detail. But um, so. And also, another that comes to mind is one, I think the first episode or maybe the second, I can't remember which one, of Dragonfire, where the Doctor is literally on a, hanging on a cliff by his umbrella. This was shown in um, The Name of the Doctor, when one of the sh- uh, fragments of Clara uh, sees the Seventh Doctor, and she is replaying out that scene. But of course, whereas uh, at the beginning of the cliffhanger, of the, of the, first, of this, the first episode involving the cliffhanger, there's always two the initial cliffhanger and then the resolution of the cliffhanger. How do you jump off the cliff or land from the cliff? Um, whereas the Doctor seems to be hanging on off on a cliff, an ice cliff uh, by the um, tip of his umbrella. In the end, it looks like he's just really on a ledge. He's just really on a ledge, and he and he's easily able to um, step off. Step off. So there was a, an, a greatly exaggerated cliffhanger. So people remember that. Which is my favorite cliffhanger? Ah, oh, so many cliffhangers. Um, I think it has to be again. A cliffhanger works on you um, if you're absolutely terrified and wondering how how the doctor's going to get out of it, etc. And as you get older, you know, you know, the doctor's going to survive or find a way out. But as as a kid, you you don't have that kind of insight, so you just kind of get terrified with every cliffhanger. And I think the cliffhanger that really stands out to me is episode five of Genesis of the Daleks. Um, Harry and uh, Sarah Jane are waiting outside the Dalek incubation room and the doctor comes staggering out, choking uh, as a, a green, slimy, car-led mutant is round his neck and trying to strangle him. Um, now, you look at it today and it's just a, you know, Tom Baker with a handful of slime, you know, acting, you know, like he's choking and uh, it would be quite laughable. But at the time, this wasn't even a, a Dalek or a person or a monster. It was just this shapeless horrible green thing you know that was bubbling away in the tank a few minutes earlier and it's it's obviously jumped on him and wrapped itself around his neck and that was that frightened the life out of me as a kid so yeah definitely the uh the genesis of the daleks episode five cliffhanger was my favorite one but for me in terms of a favorite cliffhanger well i think the best way to just say it is 
if I can't think of a single one, I, I like to um, uh, take a favorite one from maybe each doctor. There are quite a few now, so to bear with me and not have to think about it a moment, but I think that for the first doctor, granted I haven't seen too many of Hartnell's episodes. I mean, as I said in most recent, my most recent podcast with Mark, I'm aware of the Hartnell era. I've watched some episodes, of course, and I can tell you what happens in each story, but I have not watched many of his, his episodes. So I don't quite have that level of, of detailed knowledge, of visual knowledge of the Hartnell years. Um, and I know certainly I don't really have an excuse for that. I suppose I just need to watch them. And that's because, although Hartnell is missing many episodes, it's not until his last ye- full year that you really start to see episodes missing. In fact, as I've said, his first year is mo- fairly well intact. Marco Polo is missing in two episodes of The Reign of Terror, and that's it. But then, um, yeah, that's that's notable. People want to see Marco, Marco Polo, but most of the episodes are intact. And then in his second year, except for two episodes of, of two episodes of the Chase series, season two is completely intact. It's a marvel that those first two years, especially the second year, are almost pristine, spotless compared to what comes next over the next four years. Certainly, the next two. But um, uh, I, I, but so I have no excuse. But I have seen a few episodes, of course, and I need to watch them. But my, I would say my favorite cliffhanger is probably the same for a lot of people, which is the cliffhanger of the first episode of the Daleks, which is Barbara seeing um, something approaching her, some device, some being, creatures, possibly metallic, but some protuberance is approaching her, and it's something scary. We don't know what it is, so your imagination conjures up or creates the most frightening things. Now, I saw that episode, of course, not already knowing what the Daleks are. So, I can only imagine how it must have been for viewers at any time watching that, watching that as one of your earliest Doctor episodes and not knowing what the Daleks are. It's pretty hard Though even now, if that is your first episode watching it, you probably have seen a Dalek. So, the only way I think that you can have a pure experience that if you were a viewer in 1963. Um, I can't imagine, I envy those viewers, what how it must have been to, to really not know what was coming next. And really wondering, in late December 1963. Probably would have been the 21st of December, I think. Because um, I think the Daleks were first seen on the 28th of December. Um, wondering what in the world is it? What's frightening Barbara to death? Or at least scare, you know, just... Because you have to understand, I know enough about Barbara to know that she's not a woman that scares easily, exactly. Or at least she's not a... She's not a she, is, she can scream. But with her, the way the actress was and the way the character is, it's a scream that's very much earned. You know it's real. If she's screaming, she can get irritated, agitated, even discombobulated to a certain extent because of her experience with leaving with the doctor, but for her to scream, mm, it's something. It must be something. For the second doctor, I think my favorite cliffhanger is the first episode of um, The War Games, which is, um, because you don't really know what's happening in The War Games, except for a little bit of oddity happening, you, um, everything's uncertain. Except the doctor is being lined up by to face a firing squad, and at the very end of the episode, it's nicely done that you see the, he's not able. He's just not. He tries to escape, but he's captured. And with Zoe watching fearfully, um, the World War One soldiers line up. They uh, take aim, 
and you hear the last thing you see is you hear a shot in the camera. There's a quick uh, zoom into towards the doctor who, you know, his eyes are closed and he's and his and his mouth is all gape and possibly pain, and it's very quiet too. It's a very quiet. There's no there's no incidental music or any background music. It's just quiet. You just hear the people. You even hear the the, the ground like one of the soldiers coughing, <laughs> and you hear the ground you know crunching beneath their feet and such, and just the quiet this quiet stillness. And, you know, soldiers ready, take aim. You don't hear the word fire, but you hear the sound of the, of the, of, um, firearms. And you see the doctor react, and then it, and it fades out. Not even fade out, it's just all, it's a quick fade out, almost like a cut to black, and then a soft cut to black. It's, it's, it's very, very effective. And again, it's with Troughton, even though I'm very aware of those stories, and I've watched all of his available episodes and seen whatever's left of the others because a lot of his episodes are missing you don't really quite you might you might know what they are about but what they are in theory in principle let's say but not necessarily visually what all of his cliffhangers are so it's a little harder to say what is your favorite trout and cliffhanger not knowing let's say half of them um but still, that's a very good one. And some of the Web of Fear episodes, too, now that they are available. Maybe the penultimate episode of the Web of Fear with all the, with the, uh, mist entering, not unit, but the army's HQ. But definitely Web of, well, War Games Part 1 for me. For the third Doctor? Oh, goodness. Um. I, I particularly, I particularly like, um, I think the cliffhanger for the last episode of the Daemons. Because you have, um, it's just very apocalyptic feeling. And you have the, the Doctor, and he's trying to stop this, the inner thing of this, of this moving of this stone at the Devil's Hump. But they open the stone, and out comes this, you know, storm, and the Doctor's down, and he's, he's, he is, he, it strikes down, this, this storm strikes down the Doctor, and the Master's laughing, and there's flames and smoke, and the earth is shaking, and, and, um, and of course, the last thing you see is, and and, and the, the camera effect of the this warbling, you know, this 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 um, warping effect of the screen. I'm not sure how they did that. Maybe they put a um, they might put a film over the camera to make it look like it was shaking, like the whole like matter itself was destabilizing. But then you, the last thing you see, of course, is Joe seeing the doctor, and he's completely covered in this ash or this ice or whatever it is, and she's she's uh, she's distraught. It's wonderful, wonderful, and the scary music. Oh, it's beautiful. That's a wonderful cliffhanger. So, which is my favorite Doctor Who cliffhanger? This is going to be a question in two parts, I think. If we're talking objectively, as in what I think is the best that fits with the story, or, or is just dramatically the best, best written, so forth, it's got to go to Caves of Androzani Part 3. That's hands down, in my opinion. The objectively best written, best performed, and just all around perfect cliffhanger. Doctor Who is taking the ship back down to Androzani Minor to rescue his friend. He's going to crash the thing, not knowing if he's even going to survive, but he's so dedicated to saving Perry's life that he's he's pushing himself as far as he can. Icing on the cake is the fact that you can see that he's fighting off his own regeneration because he knows that if he regenerates now, he's not going to be be present enough in, in terms of his mind and whatnot in order to rescue rescue Perry. It's beautifully dramatic. It's it's just it's a great cliffhanger. But if I'm talking on a more personal level, as in not what I think is objectively the best, but what I think 
is my personal favorite, I'm probably going to have to go with, I think it's Terror of the Vervoids Part 3? No, no, probably Part 2. The cliffhanger where the Sixth Doctor and Mel uncover the half-human, half-vervoid hybrid? <laughs> that thing scared me. That, that one cliffhanger utterly terrified me. I always used to, 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 to watch Terror once in a blue moon, knowing that was coming. And I'd spend the, the first two episodes of the story dreading seeing that. And then it would come up and I'd be, I'd be horrified and terrified and want to jump behind the sofa and hide or whatnot. But in that kind of amazing... Well, amazing is not really the right word. In that kind of terror that you get as a kid where you're frightened to death but you love it. And it's the kind of terror that if you're lucky enough, you'll manage to still have as an adult. So for that, I love that, that cliffhanger from, from Terror of the Revoids because of just how shocking and, and how enthralling and intriguing it was. For the fourth Doctor, I... Um... Well, that actually, that is that's not so hard when you really think about it. In fact, it's, uh, and to me, it's Logopolis Part Three. Another thing with the Master. I don't want these all to involve the Master, but a lot of them are good with the Master. Um, and that's Logopolis Part Three. I have a Canadian friend named Brett who uh, has said that Doctor Who could have ended on that cliffhanger. Ended. I mean, absolutely ended, and it would have been one of the best ways to end the series, which is the entire cosmos is in peril, being destroyed by entropy. And incidentally, even though they, this probably was not the intention, I like to think that the Master caused all of that to happen. I'd like to retcon that somehow, just because he would risk everything and actually cause everything. I like to think that he knew exactly what was happening at Logopolis, and he was feigning ignorance, a little bit of ignorance, so that he could lull the Doctor to security and then do everything, all those things, just to kill him. Because that would make the Master truly insane. Um, again, I'm not saying that's the intention. In fact, you almost get the opposite, not quite the opposite, but a different sense while watching the episode. But for me, I like to think that the Master was very much aware. And I like to think that perhaps, if you want any sense of why I say that, it's because of when he's talking with Nyssa in Part 3, and he says, Look, oh, this is a cold place, a cold, dark place overlooking the universe. It holds a great secret, which you and I must discover together. Now, that makes you think he doesn't know, but I like to think that he knows what's happening. Definitely. But in any case, the cliffhanger to Logopolis Part 3. Tom Baker's penultimate ep singular episode, which is simply um, the Doctor and the Master joining forces, shaking hands together then. And uh, the Doctor says, one last hope. And then that, that strike of music as they shake hands close upon their hands, shaking. It's a wonderful way to end the series. Um, it could have ended all of Doctor Who. It does not, doesn't, of course. Almost ends Tom Baker's time, but that's a wonderful cliffhanger. Um... For um, the fifth Doctor, oh, it's a little harder because you, I'm trying to think of single ones, but you've got a few really good ones. I'll name a, a few good ones. Of course, it was, uh, it's been named by a few, by, um, I've listened to Tony Filer's uh, just now, his uh, answers for this um, installment, and uh, I fully agree. It's not, I agree with him, it's not necessarily a cliffhanger. But uh, certainly a wonderful episode ending uh, to Earthshock Part 1 with the uh, revelation of the return of the Cybermen, of course. That was wonderful. The, um, the penultimate episode, another penultimate episode of A Doctor's Entire Run, which would be Caves of Andazani Part 3. 
um, with um, Peter Davison saying, I'm not going to let you stop me now, the fifth doctor. It's just really that real sense as the ship is about to crash into the into Andazani. Um, mind you, it, it was just a wonderful... Amazonian Major, excuse me, just a wonderful... Um, actually, I always get mixed up as Major or Minor, because we've seen both now. Um, yeah, we've seen both now and that, and the, the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> that was the 2011 Christmas special. That was a nice little nod to uh, that. Um, but that's a wonderful uh, cliffhanger as well. Um, it's a little hard, like I said, it's a little bit harder. But um, for the, for the, for the Davison era... I think uh, that for me, maybe on a on a more personal level, um, just just because you know all these stories, I, I'm I think I, if I have to choose one, if I have to choose one, I'm going to choose I would choose uh, Modern and Dead uh, Part Three, which is. Um, it's of because um, partly because it has the return of the brigadier, of course, in that story, but it's also the the setup of you really have a real moral dilemma. The doctor uh, has a situation where he has he wants to only he can save the lives of these people from eternal decay, but doing that would uh, destroy him and is not necessarily kill him, possibly, but um, it would certainly end his time as a ti- life as a time lord. He would no longer be able to regenerate. So, uh, and I like the maths and such. I've, I can regenerate 12 times. I have done so four times. I can regenerate eight more times. Eight, there are eight people I can save here. If I don't, I, I will be, I will be, I'll condemn them to, to ag- eternal agony. But if I do, I will condemn myself to, to destruction as a time lord. Wonderful moral cliffhanger there. For the sixth doctor. Hmm. Oh. <laughs> well, I think, um... Oh, that one is 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 probably not so hard. Is, and I would I would say it's the um, it, well, it's easy on on television. But I will say this: I would have loved to see, and I'm glad that they're making as an audio the ultimate evil. It would have been very interesting to see the cliffhanger to whichever. Who knows? It would have been in the style of season the season 22, which is like the 45 minutes. So maybe part one. I assume would have been probably a two. From what I understand, those episodes would have been on television 45 minutes. So probably part end up cliffhanger to part one would have been neat to see the doctor. You know, evilish doctor. You know, controlled by the the more dance hate ray. I think it was, <laughs> uh, and going to attack Perry with a with a piece of glass. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that's done on in audio. That would have been an interesting um, cliffhanger. I imagine probably in my mind that would have been um, with a freeze frame. The doctor coming up behind Perry with the with the uh, with the sharp. I believe it is just a piece. It is a piece of glass with a sharp uh, spike or something, and he and he right raises raises it and then freeze frame. I like to think it's a freeze frame. But uh, on that note, I would say I also like the cliffhanger to the Assassin Part Three for the Fourth Doctor with the freeze frame of the Doctor underwater. That's very good too. But um, in terms of episodes that are on television, um, Travel Time of Part Thirteen or the Ultimate Four Part One, however you want to call it, where the Doctor's being sucked. Underneath the sand in the matrix, by all those all those scary hands with the Valayard laughing, it, it, it's a very um, existential, surreal, and frightening moment. Knowing that some version of the Doctor is cackling in the sky or just around, you hear his voice echoing all around, and he's gleeful at his own, or at least some version of himself's death. And remember, you've just found out just a few minutes earlier who the Valayard is supposedly. I say supposedly because 
Well, Big Finish have added a lot, and I have to notice myself. I've a- I have added some things uh, to the Valayard, which makes his um, origin not so certain. Big Finish, I know, have just recently done some stuff with the Valayard. And the Eighth Doctor, it's rather on, under low-key that for the first time in 33 years you have the, the Valayard, or a version of the Valayard at least, um, some version, I'm not quite sure. It seems to be a little bit different because he's wearing the Eighth Doctor's costume. I haven't heard the audio yet. But... Um, at least he's Doctor's Timer costume, but it's the first time that the Valayard has appeared in performed Doctor media with someone, with a Doctor who's not the Sixth Doctor, not Colin Baker. He's being with Paul McGann. I wouldn't be surprised if it's one of the farthest, probably the, not the last time we see the Valayard or hear the Valayard, but perhaps the farthest ahead we ever see him, hear him, who knows. But in any case, that is a, that's an, an amazing cliffhanger. The Doctor being, not necessarily hanging from a cliff, but sinking into the mire. It's very, um, very scary. For the seventh doctor, hmm. Um. Oh well, I think uh, I think one of his best is is the uh, cliffhanger to remember the Daleks part one, when the the uh, the Dalek, which would be a, yeah, I think it's a white one, so it's an Imperial Dalek, um, is um, advancing and and it's coming up the stairs. So that's important. It's the first time on screen, clearly at least. There's some question whether or not we saw such a thing happening in Revelation of the Daleks. Certainly Davros could level, levitate. Maybe we, a Dalek could. We saw one, a Dalek from above, but it was not cl- shown clearly what it was doing. But in Remembrance of the Daleks, it's the first time we've clearly seen a Dalek being able to levitate. Uh, or elevate um, at the time. But the same idea, this, you know, just so power, powered little spinning force field, anti-gravity unit, perhaps some type of large magnet, um, super magnet at its base. Very cool. It was in very... Um, I think that, like I said, that may have been, myself as a very young watching that, that may have been my pure Dalek cliffhanger moment because tying it back to the Daleks in 1963, viewers watching that for the first time were wondering, what was it behind the plunger or this stalk, this protuberance? For me, it was, oh my gosh, the Daleks can actually fly. Or the Daleks can go up the stairs. Oh, there's there's no escape now. <laughs> And, that, and, of course, the last thing you see is the view of the Doctor, the zoom and the, the, the approach upon the Doctor's face from the perspective of the Dalek. It's, it's, uh, and, and it's, it's not unlike uh, how the Daleks look, uh, their, their, their viewpoint looks now in the new series, only um, more or less during the, the RTD years. But... Um, it was also quite scary because it's, it's rather um, saturated. It's a little more, it's a little less clear what you're seeing <laughs> um, than in the new series, which is you know fairly clear. You can see who, who the person is, but you know it's co- a color or something. Um, there, it was more like a strangely saturated image. Very very cool to see. Um, the Eighth Doctor. Well, it's a. Oh, and then I will give an honorable mention, of course, to, I would say for the audio side of things, uh, Dust Breeding Part 1 with the Seventh Doctor. The, you know, the Return of the Master, not expected. Um, looking back, we probably should have known because you, uh, Jeff Beavers was playing a character called Mr. Sita, but he wasn't listing the credits as Mr. Sita, he was just listed as Sita, S-E-T-A. But then, of course, it's an anagram of Master. But we weren't expecting it, probably because at that time we viewers or listeners would have expected Anthony Ailey, because Big Finish had said they would probably only bring back Ailey for the Seventh Doctor, until they realized that they couldn't. And so they, in a way, broke the rules, or bent the rules, or just simply realized, well, Beavers becomes Ailey, Ailey could become Beavers again, or at least return to Beavers. 
So it's very well done. Wonderful clipping. It shocks fandom, I vaguely remember. And, and um, I didn't hear it until sometime later, but it shocked fandom, of course. Um, Eighth Doctor, you could say he doesn't necessarily have a cliffhanger, except for maybe commercial breaks of the telefilm. But um, he's kind of an exception, I suppose. I don't know what would be a, what would be the equivalent of a, cli- a television cliffhanger for the Eighth Doctor, because even with Night of the Doctor, you, know, you don't have multiple installments. Oh, and I don't even know what the cliffhanger, what commercial breaks would have been back then. Oh, <laughs> who knows? Maybe, um, maybe the closest thing to cliffhanger would be the regeneration of the Seventh Doctor into the Eighth Doctor. And if you're watching for the first time wondering, what is this? Very cool stuff. Oh, it's magical. Magical seeing the Eighth Doctor just rise from the, from the hospital slab and... The light in his eyes. Oh, that's that. That that would be a wonderful cliffhanger ep- to the to an ep- to an episode if you were to break it up into parts. That's what I would do. For and I call that episode Grace. So that's the Grace cliffhanger, I suppose. Best I can do for the Eighth Doctor. Ninth Doctor. Oh, definitely. Um, at least there are many good things, but in my opinion, it's the um, um, the ending of uh, Bad Wolf when the Doctor proclaims his opposition and, and intent to defeat the Daleks and uh, rescue Rose and all I can say this I have a wonderful professor his name is David Wagstaff um, at uh, Utah Valley University excellent 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 professor it looks a bit like the Brigadier except he's how <laughs> you will say this much much larger um, of a man um, first time I ever met him he comes into the room and he's got this Hawaiian shirt and he's got big mane of silvery hair and a big beard and all that stuff matching kind of silverish gray beard um and he comes in the room and i and i look at him look at him and you understand i'm not a small man myself i'm slender but i'm not a short person and, and i see him into the room and i think oh he looks oh, he's a pretty big tall guy and then he stands up straight because <laughs> he's, he's a large like very broad not uh, and he's just a, a large man in in some ways and and then but he, i see oh he's a taller guy and then i see him actually stand up and think oh shoot he's six six <laughs> So he's a he's a big tall man. He is a large, large man. Wonderful, gentle giant. Because he really is a giant. He's huge, um, but a lovely man. Anyway, in one of my first classes with him, uh, I'm a computer science major, so he is teaching web design. He is a, he's a web he is a web expert. Very good with those things. Um, whereas I am not. But in any case, he he's talking about. Um, but this was a discrete math class, and just different types of ma- applications of math and graph theory and things like that. And he says, and I don't know, I'm trying to remember how he t- how, how he tried uh, tied it into the class. It had to do, I think, with um, with um, organizing organizing programs, and you can go from moment to moment and emotion to emotion when you're trying to figure it all out. Um, but he showed a clip from um, Bad Wolf. And saying, if you ever watched Doctor Who, he said, number one, just watch the new series. <laughs> He's watched the classic series, too. But I think he was saying that not to denigrate the classic series, but to, you know, try to inure people to the fact, kids to the fact that uh, the older episodes are, or at least to, to prepare them, saying the older episodes are not what you'd expect if you're starting with this. And so, therefore, just start with the new series. But he showed that, and it goes from, and he explained how it goes from, you know, scare, fear to uncertainty to resolution to to declaration of, of, of intent and then and then going forward the plot and then this cliffhanger where all the Daleks start rising in the air all saying exterminate exterminate and, and you see so many Daleks at once 
as the doc says, Rose, I'm coming to get you. And he uses the sonic screen to turn off the uh, communication. Then, of course, all that wonderful moments where the Daleks are going to tackle the Doctor in force. What's left of the Dalek race? There's a reason why at the time the continuity announcer, this lady, said, I rather, I'm rather embarrassed to say I'm actually quite scared. <laughs> so, announcing the episode, you can hear her voice over the credits of Bad Wolf. My favourite Doctor Who cliffhanger... Well, I've stuck to one that's in a story that features the Master because, I mean, so many cliffhangers over the years. But I think um, of the ones that have the Master in it, it has to be part two of Legopolis with the Shrinking Tardis. I love all of Christopher H. Bidmead's stories and that one is a powerful one with the Doctor already frail, already visibly unwell and then he's trapped in the shrinking TARDIS with only three very young inexperienced companions to help him and they're stranded on an alien planet excellent cliffhanger excellent story I always look forward to watching that one immensely and I've got very fond memories of the novelization as well my favorite cliffhanger from Doctor Who well where do you begin um I think it's probably important to differentiate between cliffhangers and episode endings, because there are some episode endings that are brilliant but aren't cliffhangers, like uh, episode one of Earthshock, because they they shoot the bolt of the uncertainty of that, which is why it's a great episode ending when you finally see the Cybermen and you think, oh my god, they're back, ah, wonderful, and how amazing did they look in 1980-odd. Um, but... It's not a surprise in that they tell you, oh, look, here's the Cybermen. So that's not a, a great cliffhanger, I wouldn't say. Um, I think really, I mean, going back all the way back to the start, first episode of The Dead Planet, um, where you don't see what it is that's threatening Barbara, but she's backed up against a wall, she's turned her head away, she's looking terrified, and then she screams. If you don't tune in to see what the hell has made her do that the next week, I don't think you're human. Um... So, and that was, I think, because nothing was known at that point. We didn't know what a Dalek looked like then. You know, we didn't know what they were. We didn't know anything about them. But it was that sheer primal ability to make somebody that we just got to know scream like that scream. Um, and, And the fact that we didn't know what it was or who it was or what was really going on, I think, made it one of the best cliffhangers in Doctor Who history. Right from the other end of the spectrum, if you want to go New Who, I think uh, you've got to be looking at Series 4. You've got to be looking at the Stolen Earth, haven't you? Because at the end of the Stolen Earth, I hope this isn't a spoiler to anybody, but at the end of the Stolen Earth, the Doctor is shot by a Dalek and starts regenerating. It's a process we're familiar with by then. We've seen him do it once before on screen in this new version. And security had been tight on details. So while you were probably sure that the Tenth Doctor would finish out the season and might go on to do more, you weren't absolutely certain that that was going to be the case because... There was always room in Russell T. Davis's time as showrunner 
for the absolutely unexpected to have happened behind the scenes and for them to be playing a trick on you and for them to really have worked their bums off to make something that you wouldn't guess, that you wouldn't be expecting. And so I think the the cliffhanger of the, of the Soul and Earth really is the sort of pinnacle of that because there's no detail put up about the episode that is coming. Um, there was very little information about the episode that was coming. And suddenly the Doctor's on screen regenerating. It started. And what you get is a big to be continued coming up on screen. It's like, ah! That's, again, going back to that idea that nothing was known in um, episode one of the, the Dead Planet. You didn't know. You weren't sure. So it was, a, it was more than an in-story cliffhanger. It was a sort of existential cliffhanger where you didn't really know what was going to happen at all. And so that made you absolutely have to tune in for the, the next episode. That's a classic cliffhanger. Tenth Doctor. Um, hmm. I think of also what Tony said in his remarks about the the stolen Earth cliffhanger being something quite quite special. Um, it really was. Um, again, kind of like with the Fifth Doctor, there are a few good contenders. There's that one. There's um, oh, any cliffhanger really to Utopia or Sound of Drums uh, for the Last of the Time Lords trilogy in series um, series three. Or also the the return of the Daleks and such in in um, um, Go- Army of Ghosts. So those that's very good. A lot of excellent cliffhangers throughout the tr- uh, tenant years. But I'm going to go with um, because I'd always want to see this particular thing happen, which was um, the re- the return of um, the Time Lords at the end of the, uh, the end of Time Part One. And with Timothy Dalton's president later revealed to be Rassel in the following episode, and just a shot of the the the, uh, the I assume it's the Panopticon, who knows? Probably is. Looks extremely different from the Tom Baker years, but um, but then it probably should. Uh, not because that didn't look good, it was a wonderful set, but if they used that same set, it would be, you know, then oh, more than 30, then more than 30 years later, it would be a little interesting. Uh, I don't think that set even exists anymore. But you, you want to move with the times and give a sense of real openness. So beautiful, beautiful, beautiful... Uh, cliffhanger of the return of the Time Lords, a sudden return and surprise return of the Time Lords in a very kind of odd way because they hadn't exactly returned. But um, leads me to believe, and maybe I'm slightly retconning, that the Time Lords that you see at the end of the end of time, in the end of time, are not Time War, let's say, McGann, or now, I, at the time we were thinking McGann, now of course we think of John Hurt, but, but um, at the time the McGann era, but I think it's actually showing that the Time Lords are around in the Tenant years, that the Time War, time war has continued, in, and they are contemporary with the, the end of the Tenant times, so it's interesting, huh? Um, Eleventh Doctor. Hmm. Oh, well, again, there are a couple of nice ones. Um, um, I'd say the end of the, the Pandorical opens as a crazy, amazing cliffhanger. Oh, one of the best in Doctor Who. Kind of makes you think of what Logopolis would have looked like when the entire universe or the entire cosmos is just exploding. That's a cliffhanger. And it fades to silence. So, that, um... 
I'm almost, I'm not quite sure if I can make the call on this one because there's that one. But then there's also the cliffhanger at the end of The Name of the Doctor when we are introduced to John Hurt's Doctor. And it says introducing John Hurt as the Doctor. <laughs> that was, and we see what I did. I did, you know, for, every, you know, I actually can't remember all the words. I, I did in the name of, of peace or something in the name of the Doctor, but not in the name of the Doctor. I, I think I'm going to go with the Big Bang. Excuse me, the uh, the Pandora opens cliffhanger, just because it's a little hard now to divorce. Not disappointment, but it's hard to, to uncouple the emotions, or at least the expectation, the, the the expectation and the resolution of the the John Hurt's introduction, which is you think it's something. Maybe he's the Valiard. Maybe he's the master. Problem. No, he's not the master. But but what we are told and how we are just. Dr- Introduced and then how that doctor is described, the, what we call now the war doctor, who we call the war doctor now. And yet, the way he's shown in Day of the Doctor, wonderful performance by John Hurt. And yet, as some people said, when you look back on it, what Hurt does, being very honest, I can't really see any other doctor doing differently. And so it's it's really hard when you're trying to do something so new and radical with such an established character, then 50 years now now 56 years almost because um, we have come ahead five and actually now it's the 23rd so five and three quarter years to the day since the day of the doctor was released but it's probably about six and a half years since that episode was filmed and John Hurt has since died so has since died and so it's, time passes but um, not disappointment and not a letdown but you know, certainly not quite necessarily a matching in my opinion tone to oh this is someone that you did something that was not in the name of the Doctor, but then what you see is he did is well, he ended the Time War. We knew that already. We at least he just supposedly destroyed Gallifrey. We knew that already. I don't know. Maybe it's one of those times where maybe a little bit of dramatic overreach, trying to say this is something happened that was so terrible that um, it was not something the Doctor would ever have done. And yet, I, another podcaster, um, other podcasters and other people and fans I've talked to have since said, any doctor would have done it. It would have been a terrible, sad thing, but any doctor would have done it. He didn't. The only way, in my opinion, that would have perhaps worked is if they had shown John Hurt's doctor wanting to do it. Not necessarily gleefully doing it, but but in, doing it in a, in, a, in, a, in a harsh way. Like, I'm going to do this. You all deserve to die. And I want everyone to die. That would have been, perhaps, the match. But that's not the version we got. So because of that, and maybe I'm reading it wrong, I'm going to go with, for the 11th Doctor, the the, um, the Pandora Opens cliffhanger. 12th Doctor. Hmm. Um, again, there are a lot of good ones, but I think that one's a little easier for me, and that is the end of the... Uh, uh, the Doctor falls when the first Doctor arrives, uh, comes out of the mists, and uh, of course the Doctor's regenerating and seems to generate, he stops, and then the first Doctor arrives. Um, again, like with John Hurt's uh, introduction, the cliffhanger is, is wonderful, and yes, um, there may be some mismatch of tone, perhaps, or, or, or follow-up a little bit in terms of what you get, for why the first Doctor shows up. Not not his presence, but what facilitates that meeting. But um, but just that sense of the meeting between those two. And the first Doctor arriving. Because, as I said before to some friends, if at the time, I knew that they weren't going to end Doctor Who, but I thought, if they are going to ever end Doctor Who, this is how I would do it, in the sense of having the current, final, or whatever Doctor meeting the first Doctor again, maybe at the end of his life or or at some point, and then having kind of this retrospective and then forward-thinking kind of double 
perspective, dual perspective of the past and the future. That was how it would have ended the series, but of course, it's not how it happened. Exactly. Of course, the series didn't end, but it was that sense of, oh my goodness, are they going to end the series? Who knows? Thirteenth Doctor. Um, the problem is, is that she doesn't exactly... She, well, I think you can see... Well, there is an easy answer, actually. I, I will say that because there were no two-parters, and, we, and she's only had one full series that's aired, she doesn't have cliffhangers, except the closest thing I think you can say is. It's not designed to have for cliffhangers. Yet. But I think the, the best... But And yet there is one, which is the end of The Woman Who Fell to Earth, which is the Doctor trying to find the TARDIS, and she ends up in space, and she sees her these other, you know, the other three friends, companions, whatever you call them now, um, also floating in space. So that's, that's, a, that's a good, decent, nice little cliffhanger. It's, um... Um, and I don't want to be too sarcastic. I don't want to sound sarcastic or, or dismissive. I, I've made, I have made it pretty plain and clear on this, in Mark's podcast, that I've not been too thrilled or impressed at all, really, with the 13th Doctor's, um, debut series. And I, and I can say that, be, well, I would say it anyway, but, but I can say that with more confidence, not saying oh, I am right, but just knowing that I'm not alone in thinking that. Um, it could get better. And I certainly hope it does. And I'm not here at the moment to, at any time, certainly to bash the the Thirteenth Doctor's era. But um, maybe that's the cliffhanger: is will I like it more in series twelve? Maybe that's the cliffhanger of series eleven, or the Jody Jody's first series is okay. It was it was something, and and hopefully it'll get better. And will it get better? Well, I'm, I'm in a way I am kind of hanging on a cliff in that way because I I, I want it to get better because I I would like like something like the series to last, and I'm sure it will, but to its 60th anniversary, um, and something good there. So I'd like, I certainly will say, ask me in a few years what my favorite 13th Doctor cliffhanger is. Because at the moment, being honest, I think most people would agree, All I, the best thing I can say is the end of the first episode, by, but that's almost by default, because she doesn't have other cliffhangers. I'm sure she might in series 12, we shall see. Maybe the Master gets revealed or something. Favorite cliffhangers? Ooh... Now, we can go right back to cliffhangers before I was born. So the first cliffhanger that stands out was, um, to me, was a good one when you see the Dalek approaching Barbara on Scaru back in the first Dalek story, which I saw on a VHS. But um, cliffhangers, apart from that, are the more recent ones, which are uh, The Stolen Earth, where the, ma- uh, the master, where the doctor gets shot and seemingly appears to start to regenerate, that was brilliant. Um, and the other one, where I punched the air, was in the Army of Ghosts or Army of Ghosts, where the Cybermen were uh, the main villains until the Daleks arrived out of the void sphere. That was absolutely brilliant. Just to add, who knew the Daleks would appear? I mean. I didn't read about it. Did you? And now I'm going to talk a little, just a little while about the um, the final game part two itself and my thoughts and decisions and what I, how how and why I uh, wrote the episode and designed it the way I did. Um, and in regards, I think to um, to the master, since we're talking perhaps a little bit more about the master in this episode. Um, well, I'll go th- and I'll, like before I'll go through the script itself um, and um, talk about it. Well, the story begins, of course, with 
resolving, again, cliffhangers, resolving the cliffhanger of, um, of part one, which is the master's arrive, and the doctor, of course, thinks that the master is behind all this. But the master says, no, I'm, 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 I'm very much, a, I'm also a prisoner. And Liz notices that, yes, the guards are also, have their guns trained upon the master. And, and then answers come with the arrival of the, um, of Prime Minister Jeremy Thorpe. Now, of course, I should take a moment to talk about Jeremy Thorpe. Um, I don't know too much about the uh, real-world version of Jeremy Thorpe, and I didn't really feel it was... I was I'm aware of who he was, certainly, but I didn't feel in the context of this story because uh, that it was too necessary to get into the details of the actual, the real Jeremy Thorpe, simply because Doctor Who probably would Had this story been made, Doctor Who, this, this series, wouldn't have done that. It was simply... Because it, it was all—it's already the story's already doing so many other things with many characters. Um, an added version, an added characters in my case, because I've added Liz Shaw, and I highly doubt that she would have come back in 1974, just simply because she probably wouldn't have been asked back. They, 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 they mentioned Joe and Plan the Spiders, but um, but they don't bring Joe back, and they there's no reference at all to Liz Shaw. She might as well have been in another story, another era, another universe, really, but. But um, Jeremy Thorpe, I felt it was important and necessary to, to include Jeremy Thorpe into this story because in the Third Doctor's era, it's, it's natural because you have the Third Doctor for much of his time exiled to Earth and so he's dealing with unit and, and therefore humans and the British government, the British um, institutions of the army and such, albeit as the fictional ver uh, version of it as a unit. But even so, he's dealing with British um, Army officers, uh, with the Brigadier Yates. Benton, being a sergeant, wouldn't be an officer, but even so, you know, um, soldiers. A broader term of soldiers. And then he's um, also dealing at times, at various times through the series, and, um, well, you have General Scobie and Spearhead from Space, but, um, and General Carrington and Ambassador Death. So, I mean, outside, you know, authority figures. Um, Ralph Cornish is supposed to a certain extent it uh, satisfies that in um, in Bastard's Death, but also uh, Masters, oh, wonderful name, Masters, uh, the uh, minister, um, kind of minister played by um, Jeffrey Palmer in um, The Silurians. Um, and then Sir Keith, although a benign figure in um, Inferno. And then Terry the Autons, uh, Brown Rose, briefly seen, but a cabinet uh, secretary or something. Uh, to Lord Rollins, um, or perhaps he has a connection to Tubby Rollins, as the as the Doctor calls him, and then Mr. Chin, um, in um, Claws of Axis, and various taking a step back, various various diplomats and such, and uh, of very different um, ra um, countries, nation nations in the Mind of Evil, uh, and so forth. Um, you have a lot of government types throughout the Third Doctor's era. Uh, and I might as well mention a few other styles, just briefly in Day of the Daleks. Um, I can't remember his name, but there is a, 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 a rather pompous minister that appears in um, in the Sea Devils. Um, I suppose I could look him up. But um, you have a, a certainly a, a, a minister of, uh, of that type and that's dealing with the Navy um, in that story. And then let's see who else is there. Um, let's see, Time Monster, I don't believe that there were any government officials in the Time Monster, um, 
or in the Three Doctors. Um, but even so, you know, you have these figures. But of course, we reach, um, and even in other stories, you have authority figures, the president, the feature of the female president in uh, Frontier in Space and such. But again, again a more benign figure. In the, um, but in any case, what you have is that by the time you get to the end of, um, by the time you get to the end of, of, um, towards the end at least of the of the of the Pertwee years, you definitely have had your your share of um, you've had your share of of authority figures, um, authority figures and and um, civil servants and 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 various. Um, Personnel that have appeared in 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 present and then present and far future or whenever, um, per, um, poetry stories, and of course in the um, in the um, the the last story, the green of season ten, the Green Death, you have a scene where you start to have some government pushback against uh, unit activities dealing with you know. Um, Global chemicals and and large um, institutions that have bring have alliances with the government, and there is a there is a prime minister that appears. You see, you don't see he doesn't speak. You whoever he is, you see him over his shoulder. You maybe see him in partial profile, but a, a close cabinet minister um, speaks for him, and there is a sense of you we don't move against global chemicals. It's a direct order from the from the prime minister, and he, and that prime minister is his name is referred as Jeremy. And the story behind this is, is it's meant to be Jeremy Thorpe. And Jeremy Thorpe, of course, was a, I believe, a, the leader of the Labour Party in the 19, well, I'm sure before the 1970s, but uh, uh, probably in the, probably even earlier, I'm sure he was in politics in the, in, early in the 50s and 60s, but by, by the mid-1970s, 1973, there was a, uh, I, I understand that there was a close election. And, um, and, and the, um, production team, perhaps as a joke, or perhaps as commentary on what they thought maybe should happen with the government, I'm not sure, um, but certainly as maybe a joke of some type, thought, well, what if uh, Jeremy Thorpe wins and he becomes the Prime Minister? So they have their version of Jeremy Thorpe as the Prime Minister of England, at least by the end of the um, uh, the John Pertwee era, um, his penultimate series, fourth series. And Jeremy Thorpe... Um, so I, th- I thought that um, that I, I wanted to position I want to position the final game as a follow up in certain ways to stories like the Green Death and also Invasion of the Dinosaurs, which has not yeah, not necessarily corrupt in what you would normally think is corrupt. Oh, I'm doing the, people doing this for money or power or gain, if, but but for um, maybe more so in lightly so in the Green Death, but in the Invasion of the Dinosaurs, you have these idealists, ideologues, uh, extremists maybe, that w- in the government and various ministers that want to bring about a global change to their to all society. But for a, a benign, perhaps, you could call it a benign dictatorial sense, but a, de- a benign purpose to cleanse the world of, of humanity's problems and replace it with the best that humanity can offer. Um... Idealist, idealistic, well-intentioned perhaps, but certainly extreme and and there and and uh, destructive. Um, and so they, those things have to be countered. But I thought it would be very nice to follow up upon those elements of both the Green Death, uh, in that uh, maybe somewhat light oppositional state to Unit, and then Invasion of Dinosaurs, which is you know an extremist position. 
uh, from the highest leaders of, of, of the UK. Um, and how to portray Jeremy Thorpe, um, like, I took, um, I simply decided, I, I felt that um, I could portray him any way that I wanted, because, um, again, it's very unlikely, um, I, ha I have the luxury of being able, because this is an unofficial story, I can uh, use um, this re uh, a translated or an adapted historical figure of Jeremy Thorpe. Had this story been made in 1974, I very much doubt that um, they would have fe they could have featured a prime minister, but I very much doubt that he would have been Jeremy Thorpe, um, because it's, it could it can be a joke, and you can get away with saying, "Oh, this, the prime minister is Jeremy. Anyone can be Jeremy." But there's only one Jeremy Thorpe that was at the t there's only one Jeremy Thorpe at the time that was a um, a government minister at least, or or a party leader. Um, he was never prime minister in real life, but he could have been. And it was very close. And so, I don't think that he would have ever been prime minister had this been made in 1974. Or they, they would have featured, they could have featured a prime minister, but it would not have been, I'm sure, Jeremy Thorpe. It would have been too close to home, and I'm sure there would have been ex certainly an askance notice from the government at the time had he been, had Jeremy Thorpe been prime minister, or even if he hadn't. But they may have been saying, "Are you ridiculing this man? Are you, are you commenting too much against the government?" and 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 such. Um. And the BBC has an interesting relationship with the British government, I, I, I believe, or at least with the with the British people, in that it's to certain extent subsidized by um, payment by 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 British citizens. So it's um, I'm sure they have to be a little careful now, and and I'm sure even then, maybe even more so then, about how to deal with its. You know, maybe you can make fun of civil servants, but but real life civil servants, and any and that's and that's just at times common decency. But because Jeremy Thorpe, the real Jeremy Thorpe, died about um, five years ago, I think he died in late 2014, very late 2014, I think in December, um, I think there's a little more leeway um, to feature him. And also because uh, the Big Finish, and I think I'm not the only one because Big Finish, I know, has featured him in at least one audio, um, maybe two, a third Doctor audio called Damascus, and I think an eighth Doctor audio called The World Between the Trees or something like that. But I... Didn't uh, I actually have not heard Damascus, but I understand from it that in, in in general it is about the third Doctor uh, aliens approaching and the third Doctor acting not bothered or concerned about dealing with them. And Jeremy Thorpe visits unit and visits the area, and there's a ultimately a, in a situation. But in the end, Jeremy Thorpe um, makes a decision about what he thinks about the the Doctor and his um, <clears throat> and his. Um, his positions, and his uh, presence on planet Earth, which may certainly... It's a story that takes place probably sometime during the Doctor's exile, so it may align with the fact that in um, The Green Death he's certainly pushing back a bit, at least indirectly th through his cabinet ministers, uh, pushing back against the unit's efforts to stop global chemicals. Maybe he feels the Doctor's invaded unit. And of course I have a particular position with uh, Jeremy Thorpe and his... Um, and his his motivations and purpose in the final game, but I won't because those become manifest a little later on, very soon, but a little later on, but not part two. Um, I won't uh, say anything more except that he is um, Thorpe arrives and indicates for those. This will be released, of course, after people have heard the final game part two, which should be on September first, another week or so. And he reveals that he has uh, he is the one that has released the master um, through. 
surveillance um, 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 means, means surveillance. He's, they've essentially bugged the Cedric Center, and, and they're listening in, in, to the conversations that everyone's having. And Lishaw's not too happy about it, but as he, as Jeremy Thorpe says, it's need to know, and simply you don't need to know. Um, and so Thorpe is taking control, maybe even command a situation. But I, the way I wanted to portray him was not as a, you know, as a, as a strong politician, as I think Thorpe was. You, you could see the images of the real Jeremy Thorpe, and we use his his face, his actual face, not the face of it's his actor Mark McManus. That would be nice, but people perhaps wouldn't understand. No offense to Mark, you, not no offense to you, but you are, a, uh, but. You are more of a, a private citizen, and so your friends know you, and you, they know your face. But they would, if I were to put your face on the cover, as Jeremy Thorpe, people wonder who is who is this person? Was Jeremy Thorpe? And then they would be confused because they might look up Jeremy Thorpe and see a different man's face. So I decided to use, no offense at all, of course, but to, you, but to be accurate, the real Jeremy Thorpe's face, because the actor who played Jeremy Thorpe, I could have used that, but the actor who played Jeremy Thorpe in the Green Death, we never see his face. We only see him from over the shoulder and maybe his face and profile, and I don't even know who that actor is. Uh, I'm sure that he's listed, but I think he's probably uncredited. So it would be very difficult, or quite a perhaps more effort that's necessary to find an image of that particular man when you can use the face of Jeremy Thorpe and connect this more to reality. Um, and so I... But when you see the face of Jeremy Thorpe, he's, he, he often looks quite, he's quite intimidating in his appearance. He has a very uh, strongly bone, bony face, very strong, um, very prominent forehead, strong um, sharp cheekbones, strong jaw, these piercing kind of light-colored eyes. I'm not quite sure the color, what they would be, but um, certainly on the bluish side, these large blue um, kind of sharp colored eyes and so he he definitely has a very stern intimidating presence but i didn't want to portray him or write him as someone who is um wildly arrogant or um f uh, or self-possessed as maybe chin from claws of axis or so standoffish as uh brown rose from terror of the autons or i can't think of the man's name but certainly Kind of almost the incompetence of, uh, but the swaggering incompetence of the of the the government official in in the Sea Devils. I can't recall his name right now, and I'm trying to look up. But there's so many people's names, and it's just giving them the last names. And I, uh, uh, on this one Wikipedia page of the characters, and I thought, oh, I could look through them, but I might be distracted. So it's, it, let's just say, people will know who I'm talking about. Not the not the naval commander, who seems to be quite a helpful kind of uh, surrogate for the brigadier. Not the brigadier, of course, but hel a helpful figure. But uh, not the captain in that story. But but the, the the government official who orders the attack on the Sea Devil base. Um, I wanted to differentiate this man as a man that is quite, he is competent, he's not an incompetent man, he's a competent, uh, strong leader who um, can make friends, and he has, and ha and make very loyal friends, we see in the character of Sam Jackson, who um, who's named here, he appears, in the, he's part of the cliffhanger part one, this is man who speaks, he's a soldier, but or bodyguard of some type, a private army leader, essentially. Um, he's named here, and he is clearly loyal to the Prime Minister, because Prime Minister Jackson, please uh, tell the men to lower their weapons. So this, he's, a, he is, he's a strong leader. He has a strong presence. Uh, I'm talking about, of course, Jeremy Thorpe again. He is, but he is also diplomatic, because he doesn't say, oh, let's keep the guns up. No, no, let's put the, lower the guns. But, he does, but he's not overly charming or 
or overbearing in, in his attempts to be, oh, we are all friends. No, but he's, he's a matter of fact. He's very matter of fact and present in the situation, knowing what he wants and who he is. So I wanted to establish him as a strong presence. Uh, he, may be, he may be a first-time appearance or, quote-unquote, second-time uh, character. Third, if you count Damascus. Damascus and then the Green Death and now here the, uh, the final game. But, and Thorpe also, you know, is able to, um, you know, rebut the Brigadier and the Doctor's arguments, oh, you can't trust the Master, when Thorpe says, look, many people in my cabinet think that we can't trust the Doctor. Um, and perhaps Thorpe doesn't trust the Doctor necessarily. But, um, but he's, from the, as we see from the audio Damascus, but he's, but he's willing to, to work with, apparently, all sides to um, confront a deadly and damaging issue to the situation to the pl entire planet Earth, and certainly, therefore, his country. And so, um, but he all, and he's pleasant to someone like Sarah Jane Smith, but also firm, I'm not, I'm not um, taking any interviews, but I will answer questions if it's off the record. So he's not saying, oh, and, he, he, and I also wanted to make it fairly clear that he's not a man that would be classified as a chauvinist or something, as people tend to, and perhaps in, with, with, um, uh, rightfully so, but also perhaps at times on the cliched sense of, oh, in the 60s or 70s, men were are totally chauvinist to women. Not, not all men, all, some men are, many, perhaps many men, but not all men. And I decided I wanted to portray this man, um, Thorpe as a man that's not chauvinistic necessarily to towards Sarah Jane, but 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 strong, saying I I'm not I will notice you I recognize you I I intru I don't think it's metropolitan, but I'm not here to um, reveal any secrets. I'm not here to, uh, offic uh, to officially in any capacity to talk about myself. We have an issue here. We have a, I will answer the questions, but off the record. But we must deal with this situation. So he's but he doesn't rush things. He's very. I will go with the flow of the conversation of the people, working with everybody. He has, he's made his way to the top of the political world, the, the British political world, for good reasons. Um, and so, and again, he doesn't apologize for, you know, some, um, electronic, his electronic or whatever surveillance of the Cedric Center, because it is a government institution, therefore he has um, um, a prerogative, a prerogative, um, uh, possession of that of that institution so he, he needs there, there are secrets there he needs to be aware and of course he he reveals that he has released the master to help deal with the situation uh, because he feels that clearly the master is there and he must be he must be on earth for a reason and, and if he was brought there because of mysterious circumstances and now other mysterious circumstances are attacking the earth maybe the master can help if the doctor is not willing to give the master's freedom but the master is willing to speak on the conditions of his freedom the Prime Minister is willing to meet those terms. As the Master says, the offer of freedom given by the highest authority in the land, how can I refuse? Um, I will say, and the Doctor, of course, is thinking the, that uh, Thorpe is hypnotized, but the Master says, no, I, there, there was a moment where I was thinking of maybe having Thorpe say, go ahead and scan my mind, and the third Doctor would do essentially what the tenth Doctor does in things like the girl in the fireplace or fear her, which is where he scans someone's mind. Uh, the third Doctor does a mind scan of sorts in um, the novel The Devil, the Devil Goblins from Neptune against the creatures of the Waro. Um, creatures there, that's what the, the those are the Devil Goblins. Um, so I thought it would be a nice bookend, but I said um, perhaps it would be a little too hard to it wouldn't be impossible, but it would be a, it would not be too hard, but it would be perhaps an unnecessary moment of exposition. What's the doctor doing? Oh, he's scanning this person's mind. Instead of having the master say convincingly, no, I haven't. 
uh, and, and a nice little bit of dialogue where he says, I'm sorry to break it to you, Doctor, but you're not king of the universe. You do not have an, a monopoly on idealism. Mr. Thorpe is no more your slave than, well, than I am yours. Not, and earlier he says, not everyone in the universe believes as you do. So, showing that free will, the master showing this man has free will, and I haven't taken it from him. Anyway, so the, of course you have earth tremors and such, and this was simply just to, to ratchet the tension in the sense that the world is really coming to an end, or at least it is, it is under attack. So, this story shifts, of course, into the into the the heart of the towards the heart of the centric center with the the labs and such, and the doc, um, Liz Liz orders uh, her assistant Miss Sleipnir to take all of the um, scientists and to a to a secure shelter. I did this for practical reasons because you have a lot of you have a lot of people. You already have a large cast of speaking cast, but then you have a lot of people. The scientists in the background, you know, screaming or shouting or or, or crying out in fear. So I thought, well, let's remove them from the equation. Let's remove all the extras, which would have probably happened on screen anyway. <laughs> um, you know, so you have to pay the extras to a certain extent, and, um, but then you can cut costs by saying, oh, let's take a, let's secure everyone in the in the shelters, and which we do. But Miss Sleipnir. All reveals something very interesting. After she secures everyone in the in the in the shelters, she reports. She speaks to somebody and reports um, that things are diff- difficult, and she is going somewhere. So now we wonder who is Miss Sleipnir. I'm not going to answer that here. We won't find out for a while. But uh, there is she's she's um, she has a uh, uh, a. a Quite an important role to play in this story, or at least in the in the thematic sense, at least in the plot sense. Of course, um, I should take a moment when we, we've the action has moved into the center of the Cedric Center, into Liz Liz Shaw's and in her into Liz's lab laboratory, as I pronounce it. It's, it was always an interesting thing. I, that was no joke. When what when I was very small, watching Doctor Who, one of the earliest. Since I had the British English and American English were a little bit different, other than the besides the accents were in pronunciations was the word laboratory. Uh, I think it was Peter Davison in Modern Dead when he said, "Take me to the," and I he doesn't say "take me to the laboratory," he says "take me to the laboratory." Uh, same or very similar spelling, but very different pronunciation. Close enough that I could understand laboratory. I knew how it was spelled, and so I thought, "Oh," and then I realized, "Oh, there are some differences." But anyway, in Liz, in Liz Shaw's, in Liz's lab, everyone's gathered, and it should take a moment to say that you know the brigadier says, "Mr. Thorpe, you should be, you should get safety," and and Thorpe, of course, says, "No, I'm I'm I must I will be here with the with you," and and then the brigadier says, "Well, at least your guards," but um, Jack says, "No, we stay where we where the where, where the prime minister goes, we go where he stays, we stay." So I want to establish very simply in 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 laconic terms how. Um, Loyal and and, the, and very firm and indomitable this Sam Jackson is. He's very. Um, I haven't thought too much about his background because, and I don't think that maybe the writers and the, um, and partly not to absolve myself of of um, complexity, and character development, but I thought he's not a main character necessarily, at least in this, these episodes. And he is a, a supporting character, in fact, almost um, a small. A minor character in this at this point in the story, and so I put myself in the, in the thoughts of um, of a screenwriter, a script scriptwriter, and Robert Sloman, who probably would have been he would have been the author for this. He was the author originally for this, or at least assigned the task. He never deli- delivered the scripts, as far as we know. But I imagined how would he have approached his character, and and it would have been probably, if I may say, what I am doing, which is simply present him and give in very smudged 
if it was like painting, very simple strokes, maybe broad strokes or very small scratches, pencil scratches, very specific and, and notable characteristics. Thinking about it now, I imagine that Sam Jackson probably has been in the regular army, um, and, and probably has been um, um, overseas at times. He may maybe had some have um, possibly professional connections with Jeremy Thorpe. Maybe um, their families have known each other or something. I'm not sure, but but he has come into his employ, or maybe it's simply he's come into his employ because he's been referred. He was perhaps a, a crack shot or a very efficient officer and a very capable one doing things that others might not be willing to do maybe you know as an assassin or such um nothing's quite so clandestine but maybe just a very top-notch soldier in earlier in his life um i see him as a young man i i patterned him after the um the actor john light um um I like the series Inspector Morse and and its follow-ups like Lewis and also its prequel Endeavor. In the very first episode of Endeavor, there's a character who's kind of a a government cleanup man of sorts, played by John Light, who has a quite a, a very striking face and voice. He can be he's a great, can be a very intimidating actor and and in the in this government cleanup type. And I thought, yeah, that could be this could be almost Sam Jackson. Of course, not necessarily, but but. Um, I wanted him to be quite a, a a cool, almost cold, icy, calculating man. Or at least he doesn't. He thinks for himself, but he he is loyal, and he takes his orders. Um, so he's definitely of some, I think, military background. But he's very capable, very capable, very com- extremely confident, uh, but very loyal man. He knows the chain of command. So. Um, this, and this, as the story goes, of course, we have, of course, the the situation where the the the, the original plan is to um, is to and let me make, uh, confirm this. Uh, yes, the original plan that the Doctor and the Master have is to reintegrate, to re- restore um, the the time mode override control into Liz Shaw's uh, computers. So that's what they first intend to do. But they find that the computers have, are now protected by a force field. Um, so, and that's being generated or, or, or um, directed by, uh, whoever is, uh, attacking, bombarding the Earth with radiation. And, and, or at least attacking the Earth. They don't, they quite, they're not quite sure what it is yet, but, uh, but certainly whoever, that is, and you probably have heard the story, it's, it is radiation. Um, and so, um, they, the doctor and, and such, he's able to, um, they you know they have to trace the source of the energy transmissions to um, break through this force field and such. Um, um, so they use the uh, the center's deep space monitors and tracking equipment to in the temporary HQ to try to find out the source of these transmissions. Um, and we have a brief moment where Mike Hates wants to take part, but he remembers his place and realizes he's not. Remembers he's not. Uh, well, actually, what what really happens is the brigadier says, "Oh, okay." All right, Benton, you do this, and Yates, you oh, and then then Yates says no, I, I'm it's all right, I'm I'll just wait. Um, and while while Benton is going to check the monitors and try to trace signals and such, um, the Doctor and the and the Master decide to use their own um, use um, use their own um, um, initiative and and try to create um, try to. 
um, create a defense. Once they um, track the signal, they need to create a defense, so they want to use the time mode override control while f uh, in some other way. And, of course, Benton and Samantha Thompson, they discover the... Um, they discover the source of the transmissions is at the edge of the solar system. It's very powerful, and and they can tell from the energy signatures that it's something that they weren't expecting. It's very dangerous. It's frequency and it's and it's and it's um, output and everything. This energy, and once once they discover what it is, once they report to the doctor, the doctor identifies what's happening is that that, that the Earth is being bombarded by uh, CMB re um, radiation, which Liz explains as cosmic microwave background radiation. Uh, relic radiation. This exists, it's a, and thought I would use a scientific concept in my science fiction, which which is, I've found a lot of people, authors have said that's the best type of science fiction, which is not simply, sometimes science fiction can a little too often, as it, it should have, you know, science, fantasy elements. But sometimes what people call science fiction is simply, and I don't mean to denigrate, an action story. But there, let's simply say, I will say, I'll reword this. Some people call science fiction what is more accurately an action story, maybe set in the future, or instead of bullets with ray guns or things like as such. But a good, a proper definition of science fiction is a fictional story that uses a real, or at the least, uh, what could be real, a, uh, um, a suggested scientific concept. Um, and this is one of them, or those concepts in my story, which is the the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is simply radiation, um, ancient radiation from the dawn of time, um, that has that that exists very far away, in, 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 you know, background radiation of far distances away from um, the universe. Sometimes it's known as cosmic galactic radiation, and such, but it's it's something that is very much extraterrestrial, you know. Background, the background noise of the universe, but it's very exotic and 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 doesn't exist close to home here, in, um, existing at the edges of the um, galaxy or such and farther. And the idea that I'm using, you can take that concept and then twist it in a way that maybe it doesn't normally behave this way, but you can imagine you have the, your kernel of truth, which is there is cosmic background radiation. See, um, cosmic microwave background radiation, but then you use it. What would happen if that radiation were to be diverted? To this, to planet Earth, and the way that I have it is that it is is it can be weaponized and used as a terrible weapon because it's so exotic in its properties. Um, and they, you have a countdown, which is that the the Earth has ooh, about probably thirty, you know, it has not too long before it's um, before the planet disintegrates. Um, and so while the brigadier and and the prime minister go to inform. Um, unit and eventually maybe Geneva what's happening the United Nations what's happening um, and so we're kind of separating the characters again um, Sarah you have now down to Sarah Jane and Liz with still the Doctor and the Master and, and you have this nice little moment where um, they want to help and the Doctor very kindly says no you can't help I'm sorry this is this is um, beyond your scientific knowledge and the Master says well why don't you two just make us some tea if you want to help, just make us some tea. And so that was a nice uh, uh, callback to Time Monster, excuse me, the Time Warrior, when Sarah Jane first meets the Doctor. And, and the Doctor, he's patronized, he says, well, we need someone to make tea. Well, he might be half-joking with her. Well, the Master's not. If he doesn't want them there, he doesn't want them there. Now, look, fortunately for them, the Doctor's there. He will stop them. From, but I think if they weren't there, the Master would probably, in some way, probably eventually kill them. <laughs> um, because not often that we see Delgado on his own, but when we do in places like Terra the Autons, he just kills people. 
it's often forgotten, as I said, have said earlier, that Delgado is a gentlemanly master, gentlemanly villain. But, but he is a villain. He's a very evil man. And when alone, when he doesn't have to pretend to be charming and, and kind and such, or when he has to be in situations where he has to be, there's a pretense, Delgado, his eyes become hooded and shrouded, and he is deadly serious about things that he's doing. Uh, you see that in Terror of the Autons. Not too often that you see that, but you see it then. Well, I imagine that's how he would be if he were in this situation. If if Liz, if the Doctor weren't there, he would probably just kill Liz and Sarah Jane. But the Doctor is there. And so, um, in a dismissive way, rather chauvinist way, well, and I meant that he is, I'm saying that he is a chauvinist, or he is a supremacist, and that he is a Time Lord, and he is a supreme Time Lord from his perspective. All other beings are his inferior, and certainly humans, uh, certainly human females. And so when he says, go and make the tea, that's his way of saying, I don't care if you're alive or dead. <laughs> now, Sarah Jane, of course, and I like to, this is the moment where I like to contrast the reactions to Sarah Jane and Liz. Sarah Jane is still very, like, oh, how dare you and all this stuff, but Liz is like, no, no, no. She said, Liz, who's, I, I wanted to show her as Meg, the older sister to Sarah Jane. Liz says, no, no, it's okay, it's okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go, we'll go. Um, we can bring the tea, but then she says, for the doctor, not for the master, of course. Um... And so I, there's a scene here where we have, in the outside of the court, you know, connecting what I call a connecting corridor, Sarah Jane and Liz speaking to one another about, you know, the master and such. And um, and again, their perspectives. I don't know. Well, let's see. Actually, I've, yeah, in the context of television, various sources. The in the nineteen nine mid nineties, there was a really the f people think of Torchwood as the first spinoff, but really the first spinoff to Doctor Who that was sustained like several episodes. Well, the very first was Keenan and Company, and that was with Sarah Jane. But the first that actually had multiple episodes was the direct-to-video now on DVD. I think Probe series. Um, uh, what's it called? <sighs> Preternatural Research uh, and Observation or something, Bureau, I don't know, um, but it's P-R-O-B-E, Probe, and, had, and it was Liz Shaw in the, the mid-90s um, working for the government. Uh, very small operation, but, you know, dealing with a little bit of, like, a one man or one woman, I should say, maybe two women, but uh, two or three women show dealing with unexplained events. And so... Um, in one of those stories, it indicates, and I think it probably has also been picked with the books, that Liz is born in 1943. And the Sarah Jane Adventures establishes that Sarah Jane is born in 1951. So, there's almost a decade between the two. So, in this, in the context of this story, which I'm setting in 1975, Liz is about 32, around 32, and Sarah Jane is, um, is 24. And so... That's a no, no. It's a good size, not massive, but a good size age gap. And certainly for professional women, you have one one woman, both capable in their fields, uh, very capable in their fields, eminently capable, but very different fields. But one has been in her career for maybe, you know, has made a name for herself, but probably has been in her career for maybe officially three or four years. This is maybe let's say roughly the beginning of the Pertwee era, whereas Liz Shaw, who is pretty much sort of certifiably a genius, um has been doing her things for a little even longer and is a at this point a, definitely like a at least nationally but perhaps globally um renowned uh, scientist um but in any case she's a woman in her middle 30s and so she's 
she's definitely would be just an age and in temperament at this time, uh, like a big sister to Sarah Jane. Because you think about it, of Pertwee's three companions, um, Liz Shaw, if was perhaps the most forward um, thinking or perhaps temperamented. Uh, temperament um, of temperament um, companion that she was not a screamer she was very very um, she was very um, confident herself and intelligent like and there had been intelligent quote unquote all of them even um, uh, female companions for like Barbara a chemistry teacher um, often not noted but Vicky was uh, being from pretty far in the future she she had a lot of aware knowledge of of events. She was a young child before child, little girl, teenager. She knew a lot, uh, more than maybe teenagers of the '60s and or even now. Um, Polly knew some things about chemistry, as well. Um, I think it's her idea to use acetone and things like that to damage the Cybermen in the moon base. Um, and then, of course, um, uh, Zoe, a little bit like Vicky, but but perhaps more so, more so like the direct precursor in every way to Liz, is quite an intelligent genius herself, a computer, mostly on the sense of computers. Um, but because she's so young, her character often was a screamer also. But she could do amazing things, like when she ha- uses um, uh, martial arts to subdue the Kraken, played by a considerably larger person than her, Christopher Rob- Robbie, who's quite an, a large, um, intimidating-sized man. Of course, he played the Cyber Leader in Revenge of the Cybermen, and he began to appear as a Kraken in The Mind Robber, so he's quite this very large person. And Wendy Padmer, who I have met, and she is a very tiny woman, but yet she's very athletic, and she was able to... Um, the character is always able to subdue the Kraken very effectively. It looks really neat because, and it is Zoe, it is uh, Wendy Pepper doing those. Um, as far as I can tell, those those tumbles and those twists and those lunges and 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 and, and this, these maneuvers. Maybe she has martial arts 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 training. Maybe they had a martial arts trainer. Some ideas. So she probably had maybe a gymnast in her theatrical training as well. But in any sense, you had strong female characters. Well, Liz was very much, um, perhaps. She was ahead of her time, maybe even ahead of her decade in certain ways. And that she's this, she's a, a scientist, not a screamer, confident, calm, secure, and yet real because she can be scared. She has moments where she's startled and frightened by the Silurian that attacks her because it's a creature that claws her face, and and then fairly frightened and, and claustrophobic with, when she's. Um, alone with the ambassadors and the ambassadors of death, but she's not screaming. She's simply saying, let, let me out of here, because she, she knows she's dealing with a radio, highly radioactive environment. She is in danger. She has good reason to be afraid, but she's calm and she's able to keep herself collected. Um, and of those, as I said, of the three companions, if you have Liz, who's on one end of the spectrum, you probably have Joe at the other end of the spectrum, who is... Um, if you call them the... Let's say maybe a feminist spectrum, what people might call feminism at the time. Joe is on the other end because she's very much more for lack of better words, maybe girly, uh, bubbly, um, plucky, maybe, as, as some people have called her. Willing and eager to help. Not really able to help too much in the sciences, as Liz was. Again, I I, I, can, I lament that uh, Liz wasn't around longer because she was she was a very, very capable companion, but so was Joe. But Liz was, it would, be, it would have been very interesting to see how they could have developed Liz farther. Further. Uh, excuse me. Maybe both. <laughs> Those two words have different meanings. 
related but different. This Sarah Jane's somewhere in the middle. Maybe, and this is where I contrasted Sarah Jane maybe being more of a little uh, the younger sister, and that she she and Liz are, have the same ideas. They are both women that they are both women with ambition and talent and drive, and they don't want to be pushed around by men. But Liz is much more experienced because she's older than Sarah Jane at this point. Of course, well, she would be older anyway. She's eight to ten or so years older. Um, eight really, but she's around a decade older. And so she's, she's, and she's, she's been dealing with uh, academics and other scientists and perhaps men that might look down upon her or not. One, um, I wonder why she's there. I think, oh, well, you're too young, or you're the wrong this or that. From oh, quite a bit longer than uh, than Sarah Jane. Not saying that Sarah Jane hasn't, but my my sense is that, and the, what I felt how to deal with the characters and their interaction was that Liz has, has been around the block a few more times than um, than Sarah Jane. And so where Sarah Jane will rant and say, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, he's terrible, he's terrible. Liz will say, I, I can sympathize. A lot of people in my profession and yours are the same. Uh, but then she also says, but of course the master is a lot worse. He probably will, wants to see us dead. Now, I should say there's one little line here that uh, I want to mention is where Sarah Jane says to Liz, hey, um, you, so you know the master, and Sarah Jane says, mostly by reputation and the stories the doctors told me over the years since I came back to Cambridge. There's a reason why I said mostly, and I should say that there, were, there was a line that was cut where I outright say that she has met the master before, but by the on the advice of Tony, we I felt we agreed that it should be cut because in the for people that are looking for. Uh, something that meshes right with on the television series of Doctor Who. Well, of course, Liz never met the Master on screen. Um, the closest that you get is uh, something in the '90s called Reconnaissance, which is a, a, a Doctor Who annual type story, where Delgado's Master, it is explicitly Delgado, not too long after the events of Inferno, arrives at Union HQ and kidnaps Liz and hypnotizes her and learns about what's been happening in season seven, and then erases her memory so she doesn't remember him. But yeah, Liz meets Delgado's master. But she doesn't remember that. But I... Uh, for the same ethical reason, ethos, I like this word, uh, that I chose to have Sarah Jane and Liz already know one another. Um, and you have, there's the comics Prisoners of Time, which has Liz and Sarah Jane meet. I haven't read the comics, so I don't know exactly if that's the story where they first meet. But uh, there's an established idea that, yeah... Liz has met the other doctor's other companions, his later companions. And the, you have the BBC novel The Wages of Sin that has Liz and uh, Joe meet. It never says whether or not that's the first time they've met. And since then, you also have the audio Prime Word that came out earlier this year, which has um, Liz and Joe meet. So, again, establishing that Liz is still around and is meeting is still part of the Doctor's life to, to a certain extent, perhaps more, far more than we knew. No, I like to think the Doctor cons fairly consistently meets up with Liz from time to time. Perhaps also earlier, if, if ever Joe maybe annoyed him. I don't think that annoyed, Joe annoyed the Doctor too, too, too much. Um, in fact, if, he, if, if she did, by the time you get to the Mind of Evil, they're very much a, a wonderful team. And they were even in Terror of the Autons. But I like to think that the Doctor, if he ever wants to talk to a scientist, or wants to talk... To, you know, have a sense of nostalgia of the earlier years, he will go and meet up with Liz. I also like to think on that note, getting back to what, what I was saying about the cut line, before I get back to that, I should say, I also like to think that maybe the Doctor goes and visits up on the ancestors of some of his companions that come from the future, like um, uh, Vicky or um, Zoe, certainly. 
and this is about a hundred years before Zoe's birth, because the authors have established that Zoe was taken from the wheel by the doctor, and she left with him in the year 2079. And if she's a 15-ish, 16, 17, 18, that means she's born maybe around the year 2060. Maybe 2065, the 2060s. Well, you know, this means we're, you know, some hundred years before, maybe 90 years before her birth in this story. I've always liked to think that maybe some of the, one of the scientists we see in, in Pertwee's early seasons, when we saw a lot of scientists, um, especially in, that, in season seven, you see, well, in all three, in not so much, not too much Spearhead from Space, but Silurians, Ambassadors of Death, Inferno, you see a lot of white-coated people walking around. There's a, a woman um, in Ambassadors of Death. You see a couple, but there's a dark-haired woman, because I think that's because Zoe has dark hair. Um, there's a dark-haired woman. Uh, scientists you see in some of the middle episodes of Ambassadors of Death. I've always, and she kind of acts a little bit like how Zoe acts in her earliest episodes. I've always liked to think that maybe that's Zoe's considering how far ahead it's a century, maybe Zoe's great-grandmother or something? One of her great-grandmothers? Um, that's just me. There's absolutely no indication on screen that that's the case. But I think, why not? Because <laughs> um, it's not that far ahead. Even It's not that far ahead now. It's only 60 years from now. But in any case, because um, um, no, Final Game is nearly 50 years ago now. In any case, this is the cut line. I want. I, I've always liked to think that the master. Probably was around in season seven during Liz's time. Now I, I can't go too, can't be too libertine with that idea of all oh, the master showing up here and there because of, the dialogue and terror of the autons were. You know, it says an old acquaintance has arrived on this planet. I like to think that how do I get around that if the master's around in season seven? Simply that the timelines don't get involved, but maybe, the master it was not quite typically around in season seven. Maybe he's there, but observing for them or such, or who knows. But it's not until you get to the autons where, okay, he's trying to kill the doctor. We have the doctor we want alive for our own purposes. Let's step, let's uh, get involved slightly. At least let's warn him. Bend the rules a little bit. Beforehand, maybe he might have been causing a little trouble or such. Uh, and I will hint and say that I have written a story that is in some early production. The script is written and I've sent it to the um, involved uh, required actors of our group to um, to chronicle how Liz meets the Master in, and remembers him in Season 7. Story set immediately after Spearhead of Space, calling it The Veiled Memory. Um, I will simply say that. That yes, there is a, a story where Liz meets the Master. Um, is it the Delgado Master, though? That's the question. Ooh, who knows? But, um, so, that's why I said mostly by reputation. And we, we cut the line because we felt that people might get thrown out of their suspension of disbelief or their enjoyment of the story. People that want to, this story to fit with Dr. Continuity. Because you would have some people that would say, well, she never met the Master Liz on screen, therefore this is a break from that continuity. So, therefore, I say mo um, I say that she's heard stories about the Master, which would be perfectly in my opinion, very, very reasonable. Uh, the doctor's saying, well, can you, Liz, you need to watch out for the master or something like that, and here's who the master is. But I put the line mostly by reputation. Not simply by reputation, but mostly by reputation. Because, in my mind, she has met the master at least once before. And maybe there are others, and, and even so, there are possibly also, the master could have situations where maybe Joe is visiting her uncle, or Joe is, Joe is doing something, and maybe the doctor is visiting Cambridge, and visiting Liz, and the Master shows up. So, that's also possible. But in my mind, Liz has met the Master during Season 7. 
Um, and then, of course, this scene, of course, sets up um, um, Liz asking um, Sarah Jane, what's happening with Mike Yates? And then we get this scene that people have already heard if they've listened to either the teaser trailer for the final game, which is um, this scene where the Doctor and the Master are talking to one another and they're building this device, this override device, with the uh, override uh, circuitry as core. Uh, this defense, and they're talking to each other. And, and, I, and this is where I really wanted to, to be a little more forefront with the theme of this story being the final game, which where the Doctor and the Master contrast a little bit their, their viewpoints of the cosmos and optimism and cynicism and such. Um, and then, and this is where the doctor, the master is saying, you know, I, I'm so grateful for this time. I, I'm enjoying myself immensely. It's been such a long time since we've had a chance to engage in proper conversation, says the master, more or less. And the doctor says, well, why, probably shouldn't keep talking then. <laughs> and, and the master starts to hint saying, I'm, you know, he hints that every conversation has its conclusion, even ours. And I regret it. You make our game so enjoyable. And that's where it's the first time the idea of a game appears. And the doctor says, our game? What we experience isn't a game. You, you, you come here to kill me. And the doctor says, yeah, but every game has stakes. Treasure, power, revenge. All that matters is one plays and one wins. And the doctor brings up winning. And I was purposefully call, making this a callback to the, the Doctor Falls in Series 10. In the new series, when the doctor rants and rails against the master idea of, that their existence is simply winning. I don't get into that too much. But the master talks about it and saying, oh, of course, you want to win too. There's something that you want too, nobility and such. And then, of course, they... But the, the conversation is cut short because we are not going to play out every hand in the game at this point when the machine starts to work. And so they start to gather people and... Um... And so if everyone's, you know, they inform the brigadier and the prime minister and such, and they're going back to the... And the brigadier, of course, I want to, I should say, that is how he's dealing with the master, the, with the, um, the prime ministers. You know, he he's um, respectful to the office, respectful to the man, but a bit exasperated with the man, too, just because Thorpe is tr taking charge. And the, the brigadier, the army is, a, is, you know, under the orders of the, of the government to a certain extent, but they also are somewhat autonomous, and so the brigadier likes to, he has his way, and he has his way of doing things, and he, he the way that the brigadier appears with civil servants depends on the person. Um, but certainly with Chin, let's say, it depends on the personality. Chin, in, in Clause of Acts, you can tell he's tolerating, with amusement, but tolerating Chin, because he does, probably does not respect the man too much, he thinks, or doesn't esteem him much. He thinks this man is a glutton, he's, he's, he has... He, um, he wants power and things like that, but he also thinks that he already has power, so he's not the man he thinks he is. Um, well, in any case, um, so he's a little weary of another person who has just arrived, and of course he's allied with the master, so he's, he doesn't quite know where everyone's standing at this point, so the brigadier doesn't like to, not to be quite aware of who's who. Um, but they're all, they're starting to return to the lobby and such, and, uh, so does Sarah Jane and Liz Shaw. Um, and they're, the doctor and the master, of course, are going to test their machine. Um... And what they're going to do is use the machine to take control of the S this override machine to take control of the SSS network, and um, and they can use that to um, generate a counter signal, as they say, to block the radiation that's um, flooding the planet. And their plan, the doctor's plan at that point is once they do that, to use the TARDIS and then 
use use their counter signal to trace the signal of these attackers, and then they'll use the TARS to reach them and try to stop them. Um, and while while they're doing that, we of course um, the scene shifts and we have Benton talk with Osgood. We have a cameo appearance from Sarge and Osgood over the radio. He's not in, in the person, but. Um, like in any good, uh, good situations, people say if you see a gun on, on the table you, in one scene, you might as well, you should use that gun in, in a later scene. Well, if you have a character show up in a cameo appearance in one scene, there's a good chance you'll see him again later in the story. That's a little hint for the future. But but Osgood is also his he facilitates the situation that the situation's dire and grim. There's flooding and the the planet is still the local area is certainly experiencing a kind of apocalyptic conditions, or at least very, very dangerous conditions. Meanwhile, you have a little exchange between Benton and Yates, and Yates wants to help. Benton says, you know, you can't really help because he's not with you anymore. Understating, you know, maybe that Benton might respect and and like Yates as a person, but you can't really trust him after what happened after the invasion of the dinosaurs. Um, But... Of course, Yates is the one that notices, oh, there's a proximity detector, or something's coming towards the Earth, and then what they discover on the, in their radar systems and everything, their deep space radar, is that, oh, there's an invasion fleet coming, and they're traveling super fast. They, they're, going, they're from the edge of the solar system to the Earth in a matter of minutes. So they have 90 seconds, and, and they realize that the, and the do- once the Doctor and the Master learn this um, from Yates... Their override device will t- the countdown is three minutes to activate, but this this um, invasion fleet is going to be there in in only in half that time. So they realize, well, what do we do? And so the master says, well, there's another option that the doctor doesn't want to take. It's using the force field. the The SSS can create a force field around the planet. Say, so, well, let's create put a force field up around the planet. And the doctor agrees. And what they do there is. Um, is they set up the force field, but now they have a problem. They've, they're keeping the emitters out. But now the uh, radiation that was... And, and no more radiation is reaching the planet, but the, the radiation that has reached the planet is trapped there. And so now it's just going to really... Since it has almost nowhere to go, it's it's made it even worse. Now the planet's it's accelerating the Earth's demise, really. Potential demise. So, they have... And, and there's another problem, which is that now, since the TARDIS... Uh, excuse me, um, since the force field surrounding the planet is being, in a way, bolstered and maintained by the the override control the Doctor and the Master has, made, has constructed, which has as its, at its core Time Lord technology, the, there's the, the force field is being bolstered by a distortion field or an energy signature that will um, interfere with the TARDIS, so the TARDIS can't easily... They can't really use the TARDIS now. They can't say, oh, let's use the TARDIS and find out who these people are. It's like, well, the TARDIS can't get past the force field right now. But the doctor's thinking there's perhaps a way to deal with it. But they have to move quickly because the master indicates that the radiation that's now saturating the planet, he says, has, has enough fallout radiation to equal the detonation of one billion atomic bombs. And he gives the, the Earth a, a countdown of 36 hours. He says, the Brigadier asks, how long do we have? And the Master says, approximately 36 hours, Brigadier. Then the apocalypse begins. And then, of course, we find out about that the TARDIS is, is um, um, ineffective at this moment. But then, um, while they're trying to plan what to do, the Yates announces that uh, uh, there is a ship that has reached the Earth. It must have been an, an advanced scout ship or some type of something ahead of the of the invasion force. So now they have an additional problem, which is, okay, um, they can't escape, 
They're trapped in, beneath the force field, the, the Earth. They're safe, but they're also trapped. The radiation is destroying the is now absolutely destroying the planet that remains. And there is an alien ship, uh, an invader ship on 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 Earth. So they they, need, they track its course, and they're able to do that from the monitoring stations. Liz has this nice moment where she resets her machines and such. And and in my mind, I pictured Caroline John, you know, bent over this call this you know, computer screen as she's trying, and, and the radar screen, and this green, bright green light flashing and illuminating her face as she's, you know, very um, competently, but with intensity, resetting her her instruments. But these are her machines. She's designed this. She knows how to, to do them, to um, use them. She does. And she's able to track the position of this ship. And it's, and it's about 45 miles northeast of the Cedric Center, so it puts them in an empty country. And so, you know, location filming. <laughs> and so, and uh, everyone decides, the Master's just, well, we should get everybody there. Because these, if the if this fleet has capabilities to destroy the planet, this one ship probably does too. So, it might just be one ship. But he says, you know, it's part of a force that's capable of crossing the length of your solar system in mere minutes. And if they have the same beings that must destroy my TARDIS, then they are a force you cannot possibly afford to tread lightly. Therefore, I suggest, Brigadier, says the Master, that you should assemble the full strength of your troops. We are likely heading into battle. The Doctor agrees, and the Brigadier, and so does Jeremy Thorpe. He says, this is an order that I am prepared to give. And so the Doctor, excuse me, the Brigadier gives a signal to all traps. And, and, orders a cold black, which Sarah Jane asks and discovers is um, a cold black scenario for is a proportional response, Miss Smith says the reader, to an act of war. So everyone's getting ready to go to war, essentially. So, a short time passes, and they've, um, and now it's the established soundscape, and I want to give us something that's very ominous, in my opinion, is you could have a fire or ice, and I decided ice is a slower death. Fire is a quick death. People burn much more quickly than they um, than they freeze, and they probably d die much more quickly than they in in, in heat than in ice. But they the people die under both conditions. But I wanted a slow death, a, a, a dangerous sounding but slow death, and so scary sounds, winds, tempests, you know, electric electric shocks and and lightnings and and ice. And so the doctor explains this to weather, weather patterns. That's another callback to what you saw at times in the Tenant years whenever you had these um, alien invasions and maybe at the end of... Maybe the, the uh, people thought it was snow at the end of the Christmas invasion, but it's ash, all this rain at the end of the Runaway Bride, and more rain. Or maybe I should say snow at the end of the Runaway Bride. The doctor charged the uh, atmosphere. You maybe see this a little bit in the Poison Sky, but but you definitely see the end of Journey's End because of the planet moving. You know, it's a lot of, there's a lot of rain. Well, here... Just this on a larger scale. And a little hint that the Doctor, um, as they're setting up the convoy, and you know you have your jeeps and trucks and trucks and jeeps and cars and, and helicopters and tanks. I mean, all of the unit is now concentrating, at least the British unit is concentrating in this one place. And they're heading to this location to, to confront this alien ship. Um, as a little hint for something else that's coming, the Doctor um, has asked... Um, it's a little bit, enough time has passed, the doctor's asked Osgood to bring something. We don't see Osgood, but uh, Osgood works with um, Benton, and Benton informs the doctor that something that of the doctor's, um, one of his possessions is in is in one of their trucks. Uh, but they don't, why he wants it, Benton can't, has no idea. But in any case, well, then we have a transitional time where the convoy goes to, and they, they have to go very slowly because the weather is horrible, so it takes probably quite a while to get there few hours. During that time, so a couple of nice things happen, which is, you know, people are 
gather into cars. So you have in, in Bessie the doctor, um, the master, and then the brigadier Liz and and Sarah Jane. And in one of the lo- uh, trucks, you have Benton driving. But you have a nice little moment, which is the beginning of maybe a sense of reconciliation, is where Yates says, I, "I'm willing. I'm going to stay here, brigadier, and I wish you the best." And the brigadier says, "Yates, we you're experienced in these things. Will you will you help us?" And um, and Yates, uh, Yates accepts uh, gratefully and humbly. And of course, you have a nice little scene where Liz and Sarah Jane kind of unite together, saying, "No, you know, they're, they're told you should get to safety by the brigadier. No, 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 we're going with you. We're going with you." Um, and then, of course, Yates rejoins his unit friends and helping them. And then we have the transition of everyone driving, and then. This is an important scene. It's a brief scene. It's a character scene. It doesn't advance the plot so much. But I wanted to have a scene with Yates and Benton alone. And the reason for this is because Yates and Benton are clearly friends, and they always help each other throughout the unit years. But the last time that they appear together on screen in the invasion of the dinosaurs, Yates is betraying the Doctor and and the Brigadier and and Benton. And Benton um, has to assault Yates. He's he's distracted by a, a unit, like sergeant or something, or... Whatever, um, uh, a unit member um, arriving with tea or something, and then that distraction is enough to um, to allow Benton to overpower Yates and knock him out. That's the last we see of their interaction, which is very sad. It's, it's these two friends now now become enemies or antag- adversaries. And although Yates appear, reappears on screen in Planet of the Spiders, Richard Franklin does not share any scenes with John Levine and Nicholas Courtney, therefore their, and their, their characters respectfully. Um, because it's almost like two related but almost par- parallel plots happening, or at least si- uh, thra- strands of the plot happening. And, um, and therefore, while the Brigadier and Benton appear in the first two parts and then disappear, and the Benton disappears for the rest of the story of Planet of the Spiders, a six-part story, and the Brigadier, although he returns in part six, Yates is there throughout. Uh, but Yates does not interact with the other two, because he... You know, for various reasons, you know, so he's saying the last time I saw them, I pointed a gun at the doc, um, the doctor, the brigadier, and Benton, and such. So they won't trust me. Well, but he trusts Sarah Jane to help to help him. So, very nice moment showing their their closeness. But in any case, Benton and Yates never have uh, a reconciliation on screen, and so I felt that it was very important to for their characters and for the story and, and just adding to the to the fabric of this adventure and what we are getting the close towards the, getting the closure certainly of the Pertwee era of the unit years. Um you have a scene where you know Yates and Benton talk to each other, they're driving and Benton's driving and Benton's asking Yates, what's it like being a civilian? And Yates saying, Oh I like it, I like it, it's wonderful and then he's kinda of saying, Oh well, it's a fine normal life. In fact I'll read the line. Benton says, what's it like, you know, away from Unit City Street, all that? And Yates says, it's a fine life, much simpler really than the Army, and certainly simpler than Unit. I have more time to read, to paint, and walk. I do a lot of walking now. That's a callback, of course, to Plan the Spiders, where he's, the first time, the first scene is Yates walking in a forest. A lot of walking now when I'm not on duty at East Chester. Yeah, it's a fine life, a fine, normal life. Pause. But it's not the life I would have chosen had I made better choices. And Ben says, "Yeah, well, choices are all we have sometimes." And there's they're saying a lot more than they're actually speaking. And then Yates finally apologizes. I know I'm sorry, John. He calls him John. And I felt that was a very important moment. Again, I mentioned Inspector Morse. I love the Inspector Morse episodes, and I remember watching those when I was very young. And 
they came over and you know to to the United States. They were broadcast some years after they were actually initially broadcast. And I got to watch them. And there's a scene where Morse, um, you know, and Lewis are speaking. They're in, in Australia. A quiet scene. And they um, Morse always calls Lewis Lewis because we never until very later learned Morse's first name. But Lewis's first name was Robert. People sometimes call him Robbie, but Robert. And there's a very important moment where where, where they're very speaking with heart, and, and Morse. This story in Australia is is a kind of a sequel or a follow-up to an unmade story that hasn't since made in the Endeavor series, but has its roots in England, but it ends up in Australia. Some gangsters are such that have you know escaped justice or or people that have made, gone to Australia, members of a family of a, of a gangster or something, and he, and the gangsters died or or something and. They need to ask people that are in Australia questions about their organization still. But faced with his past, Morse says, you know, I'm old, I've never married, and I don't have any family. And 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 Lewis asks Morse, how old are you, sir? And he says, too old, Robert. And that's an important moment, because for the first time, at least on screen, Morse uses... Um, and Kevin Whateley, the actor who plays Lewis, noted this as he uses a Christian name, he says, that strong Geordie accent that I can't say. He said that in an interview. Um... Later, when the Morse series ended, but uh, and for Kevin Whateley, that was an important scene, saying, you know, it's, it shows the, the the growth of the characters and their the relationship in a brief moment. Well, I I, that, I use that as inspiration where Yates says, "I'm sorry, John," and that's very parallel because, um, unlike the Brigadier or Yates, Benton's name is ne- first name is never said on screen in in the television series. It is said in for the first time um, in wartime. And since it's been adopted, it's, he shares the same name as the actor, John. John Levine is John Benton. But he's never, that's never said. Never said on screen, never shown in the credits. It's always maybe Mike Yates, but also Sergeant Benton. Um, and so, retroactively, this is the first time we hear John Benton's name. Benton's first name. He says, I'm sorry, John. I'm sorry for everything that happens to Yates. For Operation Golden Age... Um, and what I did to you, the Brigadier and the Doctor, I'm sorry. And Benton says, it's all right, sir, you're here after all. And maybe this time we can go a little way to putting things right. And Yates says, yes, yes, we might just. We might just. So there's that reconciliation. It's very brief. But a lot. maybe it's how guys, and I'm a guy, I'm a man, and I have my friends. And we say a lot without saying, men tend to do this, we say a lot without saying too much. Um, we understand one another in that way. Women can do that too. And just like women can say a lot while saying a lot, and men can, some men can say a lot while speaking a lot. But these men, they say a lot without saying much. And so, this is what I wanted to get across, was the reconciliation, the forgiveness and such. And Benton's already forgiven Yeats, but Yeats hasn't necessarily forgiven himself. And that's what Benton is, Benton, Benton is trying to get, a, you know, convey to Yeats, saying, hey, it's okay, it's okay. We'll be all right. Then, this, of course, the scene shifts. We have this nice scene where the, a parallel, which is Ye, um, in the Vessi, Liz and the Brigadier and Sarah Jane are talking, and Liz is wanting to catch, you know, more information, saying what what's happened to, um, you know, saying I'm glad to I'm kind of glad to be working with you against this Liz, but saying what's really happened to Mike Yates, and 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 she's saying I, I hope he can work with you against. Oh, he can't because of what happened, uh, it, you know. He can't stay when this is over. And Yates, Liz says, but Mike Yates, the golden boy of unit turned traitor? That I just can't believe. But Sarah Jane, because she was there, says, well, I'm afraid it's true. 
one moment he was Captain Ace, and the next he was helping to wipe out humanity. And the Brigadier says, yes, he wanted to bring about the Golden Age. He, I was there when he betrayed us. I wish it wasn't true. But then Liss says, uh, the crux of the issue, and something where I felt, even though it was a very nice moment, oh, Mike Yates goes rogue. But when you think about it, would Mike Yates go rogue? And it's been built in the series, and it, had, and it was even said in... Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Maybe he has something to do with his exposure to the Metabolus Three crystal, the blue crystal in the Green Death. But taken on his own, if that hadn't happened, would Mike Yates go rogue? In my opinion, no, he wouldn't. And Liz Shaw voices this when she says, But why and for what? Some fringe cabal of ministers, military fogies, no offense, Brigadier, scientists and intellectuals bent on purifying the world's ecology through time travel? That sounds more like something I might join, but not Mike. He was never that imaginative. And so, I mentioned that as a callback. You know, in Inferno, we see a kind of a fascistic Liz. Of course, everybody is in that in that world, or he seems to be, but... Excuse me. But, um, there's a short story written, I think, called Prisoners of Sun, with, with, which is set between Inferno and Terra of the Autons in yet another alternative reality. An alternative... But it's a little bit different. It's, a, it's an alternate future that's created because of events that the Doctor has to thwart. But in that situation, Liz has joined kind of a... Um, a cabal of scientists, a group of scientists trying to bring about global change. And so I'm hinting that the real Liz might not do that, but she's aware, you know, she she would say, maybe I might do something crazy, but not Mike Yates. I'm, I'm, I'm a intellectual, but Mike Yates isn't. He's not imaginative. Maybe it's not the nicest way of saying it, but of course that's how Liz is, but she's being very honest. Mike is not this imaginative person that way. Not that quite, not that kind. Although personally he might be. But in any case, he's not so... Mike is a loyal person. He's a he's a military man. Why would he do that? And then they talk about the the crystal and such. And then maybe they start to realize the blue crystal. Sarah Jane mentions it, and um, and then the breeder says maybe, maybe yeah he he corroborates. And then Liz says well maybe he was, you know, in a state of somnambulism. And it's Nate Moe where Sarah Jane says what, and the breeder gets a chance to say well I think that's sleepwalking. Oh nice. Liz gets has a moment to say I'm impressed. He says well I'm not another. I'm not such a dunderhead as you might think he doesn't say that in this story, but but something along that. But he says it gives me a different perspective on what happened to Mike. And then they all have some nice jokey moments. But it is opening the door to the possible that maybe they could readmit Mike into unit, or at least reconsider what happened. And then, of course, you have the Master and the Doctor talking. The Master's like, oh my gosh, human conversation is how, so infantile. You know, the pessimism, the cynicism, the Doctor with his optimism saying, yes, people can be rudimentary maybe, but they can sometimes be very extraordinary. The topics are rudimentary, but the people are extraordinary. Only you would think so, Doctor. <laughs> but then then we come to the climax, which is they've reached where they the the right area. They get out everyone, you know, departs and the brigadier orders everyone to wait while the doctor and the master because the conditions are so bad, you know, it's, it's probably sub zero freezing and such and very hazardous conditions that the doctor and the master, they don't see them the ship, they know it's close by, but they decide to go on ahead, go ahead and and, and they're be the scouts, the advance party, because they can survive the cold, and they can survive these these conditions, whereas the humans can't for very long. And so the doc, the doctor and the master go together. Uh, as they're going, of course, we have a nice little moment where, and it's meant to set up future, you know, future dynamics of the doctor, the the prime minister and the brigadier talking. And the prime minister is saying, "Can you really trust the doctor, uh, the brigadier?" And and the brigadier says yes I do and the, and Jeremy Thorpe says well I know you don't you disapprove of my using the master but is it really any different from using the doctor and the brigadier says well the, the master is entirely different sort um, in all my years he, I've never met a more callous individual and, and 
Thorpe is maybe here trying to say, you know, I, I don't necessarily trust the doctor. And, and he says, you know, the doctor's actions, his choice, even his morality, seem very unpredictable, very, well, alien. Which is what he is, as is the master. From that point of view, how are the doctor and the master any different? So maybe you might be trying to see if he's trying to probe, test the brigadier's loyalties, test the brigadier's stance. Can he, is he maneuverable, or can he, can he be shifted a little bit in his, his loyalty to the doctor? And what you find is the brigadier is immovable in his loyalty to the doctor because he says the main difference, Prime Minister, is that the doctor has never tried to destroy the planet I was standing on or exterminate my species. The doctor might be an alien, but he'd give his life willingly if the need arose to save the Earth. Um, and I've never had cause to doubt him. The master might be brilliant, but while you're watching his every move, he'll steal your watch, turn it into a death ray and point it at the people you care for. I know which alien I trust in a pinch, sir. And Thorpe says, you know, okay, that's very enlightening, you know. You know, where our loyalties lie. It's good to know from experiences and to know where our loyalties lie. And then we come to the last scene, where the Doctor and the Master are, uh, uh, again, touring the area. Not touring, but examining the area. And again, I wonder really, with the story, contrast the, in, the characters of the Doctor and the Master in terms of how they see the world. And the Doctor, even in this wasteland and in this apocalyptic, approaching apocalypse, he sees all the ice and, 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 and all these things, and he says, this is beautiful, so wondrously beautiful. And the master wonders what he means is, all oh, this, everything on this world is so endlessly beautiful. And the master says, are you quite all right? So, like, again, a little callback to the green, not the green death, frontier in space when the master's talking about how, to the draconian emperor, how he wants to be a man, of, he, he cares about peace, and that's his primary concern. And the, the doctor says, are you quite all right, my dear chap? Well, something similar here is they're kind of doing something that the other doesn't understand what's happening. And, of course, the doctor's saying everything's, even as time slips away and this tri planet trips towards death, tips towards death, there's still such beauty here. And the doc So that's the doctor's optimism. But the master says, beauty? Doctor, on this miserable mud ball with his insufferable primitives? Everything's pitiful and unremarkable. Why you decide to remain here so often, even after you exile, I, I don't understand. And, and the doctor says, maybe that's the trouble you don't comprehend and you don't see and you don't hear. And then, of course, he says you don't hear because they're hearing something. And we decided to... And what they hear is this, this familiar sound, a, 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 a grinding, whining motorized sound. And um, it's a mechanical whine that, um, that is very familiar. People, more so the new series, will understand this and as they're, if they're here and recognize it. And then there's an explosion, of, an explosion of, of ice, an ice wall explodes. And this being emerges, and it is a Dalek. <laughs> Because what else would it be? And of course, it's almost evident. Why would I use dogs? Well, why not? Um, the last time that we, you know, I, I can go into them in more detail when I talk about part three, but why not? The Daleks, of course, are the biggest monsters or alien monsters in Doctor Who, so you should use them for as a big gun. Um, and the mechanical wine, of course, is notable for to give a, 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 a musical or, or uh, an audible cue as to what's approaching. Because it's an audio, and like Big Finish uses that those new series sounds of the Daleks moving that the original series didn't do, the classic series. But since it's on audio, um, there are a lot more sounds involved with the Daleks, and so I decided to use that too. Because Big Finish, I think, retroactively, whenever they feature the Daleks now in a Doctor's era, they have that sound. Well, um, I've reached the end of the story. I will say that, that I described the, the Dalek as silver, so it's more or less what you see the same same type of Daleks in. Death to the Daleks, but those come for the future, so that leaves a good question hanging of, well, where are these Daleks? From where are these Daleks coming? Well, in any case, I've reached the end of part two, so this is kind of the end of my commentary.
um, for the final game, Confidential Part 2.